What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 56 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode, we're speaking with Sammy Kempner. Sammy works as a maths teacher at the Totteridge Academy, a mixed secondary school in North London. The school, TTA, has improved greatly in the last five years. The improvement in the maths department has been particularly notable, where five years ago, the school's maths results ranked in the bottom third in the UK. But for the past two years, prior to exams being suspended due to COVID, its results have been among the top 10 performing schools nationally. This success was recognised when the Maths Department won the TESS Maths Team of the Year Award in 2019. And in 2020, Sammy himself won the accolade of Inspirational Teacher of the Year at United Learning's Best in Everyone Awards. This success was then followed up by his winning the Pearson Silver Award for Teacher of the Year in a secondary school. This is a really fantastic episode of the ERRR podcast in which I speak to a fantastic maths teacher from an award-winning department and really get into the detail of how and why they teach maths the way that they do. Whether or not you're a maths teacher or not, there are so many insights about teaching and learning within this episode for everybody. Additionally, this episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational. This month, I'm featuring the book Path of the Mindful Teacher by Danielle Neufer. In this book, Danielle sketches out a set of practices and strategies that teachers can utilise to increase their mindfulness both inside and outside of the classroom. What is meant by teacher mindfulness? It's really cultivating an awareness, a sensitivity to the often unconscious ways that we react in certain situations. What are the scripts that we replay whether we want to or not? What are our tells that we're starting to get agitated and perhaps about to react in a way that's counterproductive and, importantly, what can we do to systematically draw our attention to these things and to try to build habits more in line with our values and our own well-being? In Path of the Mindful Teacher, Daniel draws upon mindfulness practices from a variety of traditions to support other teachers to make the transition that she herself did. That is, the transition from an overworked and stressed out teacher to a much more balanced and relaxed presence in the classroom. If that sounds like something you're looking for, you may like to check out Daniel Neufer's Path of the Mindful Teacher. Now, if you're keen to get your hands on that book or any other book from John Cat Educational for 30% off, then jump onto johncatbookshop.com and enter the code ERRR30 at checkout. That code will also work for my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, a book that Dylan William referred to as, quote, a book that I think every teacher should read. Again, for 30% off any JCE book, just enter ERRR30 at checkout. Or, if you'd like a signed copy of Cognitive Load Theory in Action, jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash book and you'll find the steps there. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 56 of the ERRR podcast with Sammy Kempner. Sammy Kempner, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you for having me, Ollie. Good to be here. Wonderful. Um, Sammy, if you, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Sammy, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Put simply, I teach maths to kids from age 11 to 18. Love it. Short and sweet. Ramping up the questions a little bit now, 
What do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? Well, so it's a big question. I think something that is really important to me, and it's one of the reasons that I got into teaching in the first place, and it remains core um, to me now, uh, sort of eight years into my career, is, as I'm sure everyone knows, there's a, like a horrible correlation um, between socioeconomic background and uh, attainment at school and opportunities in life. And I think in a, in a utopian world where school is functioning at its absolute best, school is the, the vehicle for addressing that inequality. And yeah, I wanted to level the playing field and give everyone the chance to be able to do what they want in life, I guess. I want everyone to have the chance to be able to do that. And I think school is the way that that can happen. Um, there's also something else I think school, that I really think school should be for. I'm sure economists will probably tell you this is not the case because I'm sure they'd say like life expectancy throughout the world is increasing and people have more money and more time to spend that money and, and what have you. But in the last few years, it's felt like there's a very upsetting trend where society within the UK, but also globally, is becoming more and more divisive. I mean, equally, like people, like governments don't seem to care about, for example, global warming. Um, it doesn't look like that's going to, these, these the kind of the problems in society to do with those things that cause those things, the underlying problems are going to be easily solved. And sometimes I think about it and I get quite upset and because you, th- you can feel quite helpless. Like how, how do you change these, these systemic problems? And I guess always it comes back to education. The more education people have, the better education people have, the better informed they're going to be about things. And um, hopefully uh, that's, that's how society improves. And I guess school, what I want from school is to, to produce people who, who care about the world, who contribute to the world positively and care about other people. So yeah, I guess like a social education in that sense. I feel, it feels quite wishy-washy just saying it now, but I don't know, that's, that's how I feel. Um, yeah, to talk about school generally. Mm. Thanks for sharing that, Sammy. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey to date and how you got to to where you are now and maybe a bit about your role at the Totteridge Academy? And within that, feel free to touch on anything that relates back to your your comments about the purpose of school-based education as well. Yeah. So I started teaching in 2013 with the Teach First program in the UK. I, I imagine, like, I know it's got Teach for All across the world. The idea is addressing educational disadvantage by getting <laughs> top graduates into teaching roles. I always feel a little bit hesitant about that, like that, that kind of tagline because I think it maybe does did the teaching world a disservice a little bit. But equally, I mean, like education standards have not been good enough for a long time, and you know we need better people in teaching. So that that is a fact. So anyway, I really bought into this. Even though, so when I was growing up, I went to a private school up in Leeds in North England, um, and I just didn't really. It's hard to know about disadvantage in, in that context and I think it's only when as I've grown up and particularly since I started working in schools that it's just it's become something that really drives me and so I anyway I got into Teach First in 2013 um, worked at a school called Hatch End in, in North London worked there for three years then did a bit of traveling and then basically I, I was I was looking for a school that was sort of aligned with my interests that was had a high rate of free school meal students or pupil premium as we uh, as we essentially call them in the UK now but also that was was going in the right place um, that was in a, in a period of improvement. Um, and I was directed in to, towards the Totteridge Academy and Chris Fairburn, who's the head teacher there now. And I remember he gave me a, he gave me a long old tour of the school and he really sold me a vision. Um, he famously said, I want to be the most improved school in London in the next five years. And I really bought into it, to be honest. He gave me hours of his time. He didn't even know me. And it's quite rare that I think head teachers give uh, so, so free with their time. And uh, I bought into it. I was a little bit hesitant at the time, so I didn't have 
I wanted to teach A-level maths and they didn't have a sixth form at that point. And it was a big thing for me then. But I decided to go with my gut. And honestly, <laughs> it's, uh, it's been the best decision of my life, probably, without a doubt, professionally. So, yeah, I joined TTA in 2017. And since I've joined, I think I was walking around my old school thinking that I'd sort of completed teaching. And uh, I joined TTA and I remember, so the maths department, we'll talk more about the maths department, but I remember going to see a few colleagues and within the, within the maths department. And honestly, on the one hand, I was, I, was, I was like shocked and upset because I was just, they were playing a different sport to what I was doing. It was like I'd seen the world in colour for the first time about what could be achieved in the classroom. <laughs> but on the other hand, I was like very, I found it extremely motivating. Um, the school's got a big, it's got a, a word called Kaizen, which is a Japanese word for self-improvement or continue, continuous improvement, not self-improvement, continuous improvement. And it, it's very much the driver around and about school. And I've, I've turns out I, I really like trying to improve. Um, it wasn't something I was consciously aware of before I joined the school, but since going to see those colleagues, I basically started observing one of them in particular, who is sort of the godfather of the maths department. He's he's come up with a like all kinds of things that we use on a daily basis, and really a lot of the ideas that we use are his. Uh, shout out to my man Thanos, <laughs> but he um, but he he is. Uh, I went to watch him basically every single time that I was free for a year because um, he was teaching year eleven at that time. I basically became like a, a sort of teaching assistant in his classroom but I was just sat there observing as well and it was probably the best CPD it was by far the best CPD I've ever had and yeah uh, from there I've just uh, continued to try to improve I did a master's recently I saw you had peps on recently um he fun interestingly enough he was my tutor when I did the master's in expert teaching uh, about three years ago so yeah, I, I did that course with Ambition Institute and I found that extremely interesting and unbelievably helpful to my practice and yeah, like, so all these things have um, contributed to where I am today and, and I'm still loving teaching. I love my school. I think it's just a great place to work. I, I'm constantly challenged by my colleagues and I, uh, I can't imagine working anywhere else, to be honest. That's awesome. Um, just to pull on a thread there, you mentioned the, the Ambition Institute. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience there and, and why it was so impactful to you and, and what it is that you learned there. Yeah, so when so part of Teach First, um, when I did that back in the days, you can do a master's in leadership and education, which I did, um, but it was very theoretical. Um, and it, it kind of it didn't put me off further education, but I thought for that for the time being I was done with it and I wanted to just focus, like do practical things within the classroom and not spend a lot of my time thinking about theory. But then I, I read about this course. It was actually the um the first cohort that I was part of. And the, the reason the course attracted me, it was it had a theory, theory base. And I, at the beginning of every module, was, we did a lot of reading and a lot of discussion. And we had the uh, conference days. And we got our heads around all the literature. But then from that point, it was about translating it into our practice in, in the classroom. Everything we did was designed to improve our teaching practice. And we sort of test ran our interpretation of one aspect of the literature to, into something tangible in our classroom that was designed to improve our practice. And ultimately also give us knowledge within our, if you want to, like, uh, we, we, there's a quite a heavy cognitive science basis, like to, to increase our, the scheme in our long-term memory about what, what constitutes good teaching and learning so that long-term we can be self-sufficient and then continue to improve our practice beyond the course when the course finished. So anyway, that's what I did. And that, honestly, I, I, it, was, it was really, it was a lot of work. It was very hard to do a full-time job and that at the same time because it was very demanding of my time, but it was like completely worth it. 
I'm really pleased I did it. So yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's wonderful to have that insight into what you really found valuable that, um, that kind of balance and that interweaving of the theory, but then a really high focus on getting it into practice makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, thanks for sharing that, Sammy. So the reason why um, we're here chatting today at 5.30 uh, in my time and 8.30 your time is that I actually heard Adam Boxer, um, who works at TTA as well, on James Mannion's podcast. And for those who aren't that familiar with Adam Boxer, Adam is one of the very, very famous and prominent teachers in the UK. And I would say that you know Adam would proudly label himself a trad um, or a traditional teacher, You know, very much stand, stand at the front and deliver kind of an approach. And, um, you know, he does it very well. He's done a lot of writing about that. His work is very popular. And so I was very curious and interested to hear Adam talk on James's excellent podcast about the maths department in his school, which he said was one of the best performing departments in the country, but yet they did these strange things like group work and getting students to take <laughs> charge of their own learning and things like that. And so I thought, you know, I mean, these are areas that I'm, the idea of self-regulated learning is an area I'm becoming increasingly interested in. And I thought, you know, if Adam Boxer says that this group works good, then this group work must be really good. And I, I'd love to have a chat with some of these people. So that's a bit of a background. But in, in terms of starting with that, that student achievement, could you give us a bit of a rundown of yeah, how, your, how your students go? What evidence is there that the maths program at TTA uh, is effective? Yeah, so in terms of how our students go, as in like just what make like what the evidence is um, that they're doing well, really, yeah, yeah, correct, yeah, cool. Um, so first of all, it's a very difficult. I, I'm sure you struggle this on a daily basis as well. Um, but as a teacher, it's hard to ignore exams because you don't want to be teaching to the test. It's not the point. Tests are a measure of education. Um, education shouldn't be about the test. Is missing the point completely. But equally. Test results are a, a sort of symptom of whatever the situation is in the classroom often. And if you're not too worried about the tests, but the exams, external examinations, by, by tests I mean external examinations, then you can still achieve good results. But I, I think the main measure of our students' success is when you walk into our classrooms in the department, the level of active engagement in everything that's happening, both when the students, when the students are listening, when the students are asking questions, when they are being questioned by the teacher, and when they are working in their groups, that is the most notable aspect of it. And I will very happily talk about group work for a long time, I'm sure, um, later on. But uh, so I think it, when, when someone walks into the classroom, they can see the engagement. And I think this all sounds like, you know, you've got to take my word for it kind of thing. But when that's coupled with our test results, um, our GCSE results for the last two years have been in the top 10 in the country nationally in terms of progress. And that's including selective schools. So uh, like even the very best grammar schools and private schools in terms of progress, value added from where the kids arrive in year seven to where they leave in year 11. We've been ranked in the top 10 in, in the two most recent Rounds of exams, obviously COVID has, has put an end to that. But as a teacher of the classes that we've had for the last two years since COVID hit, I'm quite confident. I was quite gutted for all kinds of reasons about how exams were taken away. But I was quite confident we were going to do better and better. So I think that that's the evidence, which is sort of adds credence to, to my saying, come and look in our classroom. The engagement's like really good. So yeah, that's that's where I'll place my flag. Cool. And is, is, is TTA a selective school itself? No, sorry. No, no, not at all. The only way in which it's going to be selective is obviously, I, I imagine this happens all over the world, but in the UK, there's a problem, which is that as a school gets better, the demographics of the students who go to school change because all of a sudden 
parents who care about their kids' education start wanting to send their kids there. And over time, that means that you have fewer disadvantaged students in the school. And we've noticed that trend in the last couple of years. And I think we're, we're in the process of, if it hasn't already been confirmed, um, being able to get a quota of people premium students so that we can continue to do something which I think is, is something that's very important to all the members of staff who work at the school. So, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what the question was. That's <laughs> what awesome. Was the question? I asked if you were um, a selective school. Yeah, yeah. So that is the only way in which we are we are going to be selective. Yeah, okay. Kind of in the opposite opposite way that people would <laughs> yeah. usually think selective yeah, means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's that's great. Yeah. And that's I had James Hanscom on as well recently from Harris Westminster Sixth Form, and they have a similar thing. You know, a really f- real focus on making sure that the students that get in there are the ones who are going to benefit the most from that instruction. So that's great. And you know, to to be. Is, is there only the last two years that you've been in? Um, sorry, only the last two years, but I'm um, kind of did some, did you start doing something differently the last two years that you think really led to that um, increase in achievement, or were you like eleventh a couple of years before that, or no? So sorry, I should have given the full context. Uh, five years ago, before Chris took over, who's the head teacher now, he brought in a whole new senior leadership team, and they sort of they're, 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 in the last, there's been a huge staff turnover initially when he arrived five years ago in the year before he arrived the school the school's math results were in the 71st percentile nationally as long as that means that it's in the bottom third rather than the top third i don't know i'm not sure but um in the, anyway in the bottom third in terms of progress and one of the teachers he told me that uh, he was told by a member of staff or a member of the math department back then five years ago that there was just something in the water our kids just did, didn't like maths couldn't do maths and so from there we had one year where we jumped jumped up the first year that they took over we they massively outperformed i wasn't there at that point but they massively outperformed their wildest expectations and i think they came in the second percentile so jumped from 71st to second and then the following year we came seventh just flat seventh best school progress and then the, the year after that i think it was seventh again and then then obviously covid last year meant there were no examinations and same again this year so yeah that's phenomenal because that's it's such a quick turnaround. Often, often when a school changes, it's like people talk about this long change process. But to you know, first year in to be to be making that jump from seventy fifth to second percentile is 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 crazy, phenomenal. We we've, we've wondered a little bit about how we did as a as a school. We did better than we were far better than we were expecting. I think particularly so what's interesting in the maths in in our school is the school's massively improving across the board. But it's a, like differing rates in different departments. And I think the schools that are around us in, in terms of math results in the country, they're schools where there is a very clearly established culture throughout the school. And it's not just in math that they're in the top seven, but in English and science. And it's very much an across the board thing. And they're big, they're, na- they're schools with big names. Um, and no, no one's really heard of TTA, although maybe that's about to change now. But I think um, I think that it's testament to just the incredible work that, that my colleagues in, the, in our maths department have done. And I think also perhaps it's something to do with maths being it's, it's a subject where quick wins are achievable. Um, if, if like we've got to be honest about these things, it's easier to have. Maybe it's impossible to turn around English results in, in that like time frame to, to such an extent, because arguably the skills you need to be good at English are like developed over a longer period of time and from an earlier age. Possibly, I don't know, this is just speculation, but I, I think there's certain, something to the fact that maths can, can have quick wins, which I think are the my, my excellent colleagues were able to really make the most of. Perhaps, I don't know. Mm. But one, one final question bef- before we kind of dive into influences and then what happens in the in the classroom. When you talk about growth, how is that growth measured? 
Growth, sorry, growth in what sense? So um, this was the metric um, on which you moved from 75th to second and then into the first percentile. You said it was it was on, you know, not overall achievement, but the actual growth that students make. So how, how is that measured and over, is that like a year's worth of measure at the start and the end or something or how does that work? So the the progress the progress score that's what that's what we're talking about right yeah sure yeah so students students arrive it's something called progress a it's a new system the government used rather than just having just league tables in terms of attainment so the top schools are the ones that get the most a stars uh four years ago five years ago i can't remember what it was um they changed the metric which was such that students come into the secondary school with grades from their um we call them sats but they're sort of standardized testing when they're 11 years old at the end of primary school um, and based on the grades they get there, they're expected to make a certain amount of progress across their five years in secondary school. And if they make, if across the board, every student in a school makes the expected amount of progress when they finish their GCSEs. So if you come in with on a, with a SAT score of four in English, then let's say you're expected to get a grade six or seven in in year 11. If every student makes expected progress, then the idea is that the school scores a progress of a grade of zero. And so half the schools will be above zero and half the schools will be below, below zero. And in terms of the value added, obviously, the better that the school is at, at educating the students, in theory, therefore, the better their exam results will be. Therefore, the more progress they will have added, they will have made compared to their peers in other schools. And that's what gives them their progress score of whatever it is. I think our progress score was plus 1.4 as a maths department, which means on average, students made 1.4 grades better progress than they would have been expected to do. That's enormous. Yeah, that is, we are, like, I'm definitely really proud of it um, as a score. So yeah, yeah. Okay, and is that is that based upon some national test that students then do at the very end of year seven? Is that is that how it works? Yeah. So well, at the end when they finish primary school, they do the SATs, which is the national thing, and then at the end of year eleven, they do their GCSEs, which is a national like standardised testing across the country. Every sixteen year old does it, uh, does these exams in whatever subjects they're taking, and those that's that's where the the progress is taken oh, from. Okay, got it. So so those that first cohort of students from the uh, under new leadership. They were actually, it was the growth of them as year 11s, like from their year six point. So that actually come through the school the whole way, but then that only had one year under the new leadership. Exactly. And they, they made phenomenal progress. Wow. Which makes that 1.4 extra <laughs> yeah. even more remarkable. Yeah. yeah. And perhaps explains why, you know, you went into the second percentile and then the first the next year because those students had two years under the new leadership instead of just one. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Wonderful. Thanks for that. Bit of a detail <laughs> look into the look into the data. No, there. no, I hope I hope it made sense. Sorry if it wasn't clear. No, definitely. That was great. Uh, and it also builds on the discussion I had last um, episode with Rachel McFarlane when she was talking about the kind of growth that was achieved at Isaac Newton Academy that she led for, for several years. So that's great to know. In terms of the shaping, bef- before we do jump into the nitty gritty of what happens in the maths classrooms at TTA, I'm keen to know like the influences. Are there are there kind of books that helped you talk you talked about the work of Thanos as being a real leader in the school? But do you know what kind of shaped his thinking and your thinking of, as you've been, um, I would imagine, taking on more leadership and having more ideas um, about how to improve things? What books or theorists or other teachers or um, what source of ideas have kind of shaped this program? 
Yeah, so it's a sort of mix of seminal publications like Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion. Like we, as a as a school, we have there's a, a big a big thing about my school is that the senior leadership team are aware that they, as individual subject teachers, don't have expertise in other people's subjects, and so a great <laughs> cost to them in terms of time because it's very difficult to admit, like um, manage. There's a big drive for autonomy within subjects. Um, so subject departments decide how they want to do things. And as a department, they agree on it and they come up with their, their own handbook. And the key to it is whatever they say in the handbook, that is sort of their Bible. They have to stick to that. And we have our own mass department Bible or handbook, which, which we stick to. But there are some things that as a school, we all subscribe to regardless of our department. And the sort of fundamentals of Teach Like a Champion are definitely pretty important. We have four whole school questioning strategies, for example, that we use every lesson, throughout every lesson and in all subjects, which I'm sure a lot of people will know of, which are cold calling, no opt out, right is right and stretch it questioning. Um, I don't know, we can go into more detail, but I'm sure people know about that. And uh, uh, obviously Doug Lamov is is, is the, the expert and the creator of those things. And we, we all do that. And, it, and it's a massive feature of our, of not just our schools, but also our mass departments um, policy. Beyond that, we, as a, so TTA is actually, my school is actually part of United Learning, which is a big multi-academy trust um, in the UK. I think it might actually be the biggest. I think it's some like 80 odd schools that are part of it. We have a lot of autonomy to do things how we want, but I know within United Learning, there is a drive to use the Rosenshine principles of direct instruction. Um, and as a school, we we're on board with that and we do that again across all the departments pretty much. Now within maths, if we're talking about maths and, and how we shape the maths department, when we were creating the handbook and the first template of it was made about four years ago, I think in my first year um, at the school, we, we basically used up all of our mass meeting time to discuss the things that we believed um, were important to mass learning um, that we sort of felt personally invested in. And we basically just had it, had it out in our department meetings and debated. And it's one of the most important things I think at my school is I feel challenged by my colleagues every every day. And if people don't agree with what I'm saying, they're going to call me out for it. And I, I think it's extremely healthy. Um, and I remember in those first few meetings, I, I said things because I famously thought I'd complete a teaching at that point. And uh, they they just obviously it wasn't aggressive or anything but they just asked me questions like how do you know that your students are learning from their mistakes if when you're reviewing tests you give them work solutions and I didn't have an answer for them and so like I said oh wow yeah fair point how do you review tests um, how do you give feedback and, and so we had a discussion and over those department meetings we formed the basis of our handbook informed about it keeping in mind things like Rosenshine and Lamov practices I think there's also within our maths department there is it's, it's not quite as we've mentioned Adam already but I know Adam's huge on direct instruction that's just what he, he is going to do that all lesson every lesson almost but within our within our department there is a little bit more how should I say it it's not quite as black and white I think there's a time and a place that, that I think the best way of saying it is that's the bread and butter of our lessons but we often veer off course we sometimes veer off course when we think it's appropriate and when we think it's important so for example <laughs> there's, there's a really good lesson that we, we like doing where you're introducing sample space diagrams to a year 10 class. And we, we basically set up a gambling game with like dice. And but we go we make a big thing about it. The kids obviously don't realize it's, it's where it's going. And we actually do bets <laughs> like that. I'm betting like uh, I'm making them bet detentions and stuff into for like unknown like prizes and Part of the moral of the story is like don't make bets when you don't know what's going on, and uh, and then they're like obviously the tape, and I'm sure the cognitive scientists would say there's a lot of extraneous load going on when uh, when you're doing that sort of thing. 
but I actually think it's really important. And I think it brings, when you can bring maths to life or not just us, when you can bring maths to life, it's, 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 you've got to do it because engagement's everything. You can't do good direct instruction if you don't have engagement. And also like we care about the wonder of maths. And I think sometimes people try too hard to shoehorn real life examples into maths to try and make it interesting at the expense of enjoying just maths for its for its own beauty for its own abstract beauty and so we try to do that where where possible for like for, uh, there's a really nice one for example when um converting recurring decimals to fractions and uh just starting off with a question who thinks 0.9 recurring is equal to one and like when when like, obviously no one does and you you go through the whole by proof like and how to do it and then at the end you go back to that that, that particular example and it's it's a privilege to see like to see students experiencing that proof themselves that they've done because it's obviously not it's not very difficult to, to convert recurring decimals to fractions but it, it's a real bit of maths and uh, like moments like that are really important and you have to let uh, we agree as a department sometimes it's good for kids to discover things like that but not it's not it's not really it's not inquiry-based learning and almost the, the bread and butter is direct instruction but it, it's not as black and white as that all right Thanks for that, Sammy. A bit of a theoretical background and some some kind of big picture ideas. Let's jump into the classroom now. And we're, we're kind of just going to step through, you know, I'm grateful you shared with me a handbook and I really enjoyed reading through that and was really intrigued by a lot of it. So we're just going to kind of step through different components of, of the lesson now. And I'd like to start with the very start. So what do, you, what do students do when they walk into the classroom? Um, so there's always some sort of do now or starter task on the board it can either be to so usually the idea is to improve students mathematical fluency by that we mean just the sort of core processes and skills needed to be able to do harder maths um, without having to think too heavily about the sort of mechanics of of what they're doing so um, nothing too complicated necessarily uh, but not definitely not easy I think there's an underpinning value that we all agreed in the department which is that challenge is important at all times and it's better that students are panicked by the challenge than that they're in their comfort zone and I can talk more about that in a bit but so the do now will have a, maybe three four fluency style questions a lot of people in the department, actually, one of the, the things that I had first developed on my master's um, with Ambition Institute was it was the consolidation module. And I developed fluency tests in, using distributed practice to boost consolidation. But what I developed was like a question level analysis for each fluency test. So every question was just worth one mark. I get the kids to mark it themselves. But then I take them in and put them into a question level analysis. And it's sort of color codes according to what proportion the students get question seven right and it, 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 different colors it indicate a different proportion of the class getting a question right and so based on that fluency test that's what if students perform badly in topics x y and z from from the fluency test then i put those topics into the do now that week because i can see that there's something they're forgetting so that's what for, that i don't know if, that's probably not quite normal practice but it's, it's definitely used within the department and i think if it's not that scientific it's not that sort of scientifically rigorous a process and it's the student it's the teachers using their gut feeling to say what have we not done for a while we'll do something that, that that's going to boost consolidation mm, that's great i think that makes so much sense tracking in whichever format is is kind of sustainable for teachers tracking what students are doing well on and what they're still struggling on something something i've been curious about with the whole whole do now thing is you know say students can't do skill a today and so you repeat it next lesson what happens in between today and next lesson that's going to increase their probability of being able to do it tomorrow yeah so uh, we, we we sometimes have debates about this because we i think as a department a fault of ours is that we spend too long doing do nows because we review the do now and we after they've done it particularly 
if there's a common theme of a problem, then the teacher addresses it in the classroom at that point, possibly even reteaching that thing very briefly, um, scaffolding the student's understanding through questioning, whatever it may be, but they'll reteach it and then test to see how good a job they've done in terms of feedback the next day when they include it in the do now. So I guess that's what that's what happens. It's dealt with there and then. Um, alternatively, sometimes what I do is I, we use Hegarty Maths. Um, I don't know whether, whether you've heard of Hegarty Maths. It's just an online learning platform. Um, where there's something like 925 tasks, each of which has a quiz which self-marks and generates new numbers each time the students do it, and a video explanation should they need some extra support. But sometimes I set specific Hegarty tasks on questions that it's clear my students might have forgotten and sort of put it on them to sort out that week. And then we come back to the fluency test the next week and see how they're doing with it. And I guess sometimes if, if, if they're still not getting it from the homework, then you can start to put it on them. I think a word I haven't mentioned yet is accountability. Accountability is at the forefront of everything we do. Or almost every activity that we do, there's a sort of subtext of how are we making the students accountable for this that, that I'm asking them to do right now. And by accountability, I mean not letting them get away with not thinking or trying. So, yeah, if they haven't answered it from the homework, then I'm probably asking them the question, what are you doing for your homework? How are you doing your homework? How is it the case that after a week of practicing this, you're still not getting it? You've got to stay here at lunchtime and I'm going to see you do my homework. I'm going to watch you do your homework. And then obviously, if you need some help, then I'll help you. But yeah, putting it on them and making sure they know they're not going to get away with not doing it is really important. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So if, if say, your do now includes a skill from court a couple of months ago or something, so it might not actually be in their, in their homework, and you do the do now, a bunch of students struggle, you go through it, how do you then, and this is a question from, that I have for myself as well, how do you then put that into the terms of accountability to say, do you say something like, now we're going to do this again tomorrow? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And and this is what I want you to do before then to consolidate what we've just done. Do you, to talk me through that. Yeah, so if if it's clear the students have forgotten, so, I, I, so basically we're always trying to create an error culture in the classroom where students are happy to, they, they need to admit their mistakes. And we're going to talk more about chance later as well, but Chance is a big part of our classroom culture. So, and we have a chant, which is mistakes, learn from them. And so we, the teacher says mistakes and all the students repeat, oh, say, say back, learn from them. Uh, it's very cute. Um, I thought it was a bit weird when I joined, but now it's absolutely in- integral to everything, to, my, to, to all my teaching are the chants. But if a student make a big point about saying, it's not your fault if you've forgotten something. I'm never going to be upset if you don't understand something. That's just normal. People don't understand things. What I do have a problem with is if you've not understood something, have you asked a question? If not, why not? That's on you. And are you listening? And so uh, and are, are you writing things down in purple pen? So we use purple pens for the students to make reflective notes a sort of metacognitive strategy to help their learning. And so when we're going through a do now, I'll say to them, fair enough, we've forgotten this one. Let's go through it now. You must ask me a question if you don't remember, if you don't understand something. And that you need to be writing something down in purple pen, the strategy, not the numbers. I don't want to see any working out in your books. I don't want you to be copying down my working. You're going to write how to do this question so that you can answer any question like it in future. The next day, and, and by the way, guys, we're going to do this tomorrow. And I'm going to see who's, done it, who's actually doing what I'm telling them to do. And then the next day, we see. And if and uh, I, <laughs> it can possibly be a little bit scary sometimes. Like it's a very high stakes environment. And if, let's say, I target a student, honestly, I target the students I think are least likely to know. And they know that I'm going to do that. And it's, it's very accepted. Um, and I think it definitely sparks the motivation from the student's perspective. And, it, and it, it's that accountability again. And when, so I'll, I'll call a student I think wasn't doing it properly. I'll make a mental note the day that I explain it. And I'll say, I, I reckon that student's not, not been listening properly. The next day, I'll, I'll pick on them and I'll say, 
tell me how to do this like from completely um if they struggle or if they say something that's incorrect we have a big emphasis on explanation of method as well you've always got to know why they're doing what they're doing it's not just about the answer and if they go wrong then i'm really going to lay on them and be like this you know you're messing around why did we waste 10 minutes yesterday going through this writing down purple pen notes and the next day you still got no idea and (laughs) it's a yeah, it's, it's, as I say, it's quite high stakes. I think it's very effective. Um, and I think also, if, as, long as, as long as the students, it's very weird. Like, I've got a year seven class um, this year, and I think it takes some, a huge amount of getting used to for the year sevens. And they get that, that sometimes I have to deal with them being a bit scared or a bit like nervous about coming in. But I think over time, they realize that it comes from a place of love and like a place of, I only want the best for them. And when they, and when they do do it right, then obviously you, you have to say, well done and you praise properly and genuinely but i'm also definitely not one for praising you know picking up your pen or writing the date and title you praise things that are genuinely worthy of praise and the students understand it and really kind of thrive off that um so it goes both ways i don't want to give the wrong impression but it, mm. yeah yeah that's great i think i think that accountability you know whenever i'm talking to someone i'm always listening to like the active ingredients of their practice and to me it seems that that focus on accountability and the extent to which it's like a student by student accountability and like you said then you're actually when you're giving the explanation because I, I mean i do this as well but i don't necessarily follow up i'm explaining something i'm looking around i'm thinking oh that student's not actually listening they're not going to take this in but then actually going tomorrow you know to use your words to pick on them and actually you know that if, if they learn that they can't actually get away with it that can really generate a, a shift in practice I'm quite interested because teachers sit on a on a spectrum of of comfort with ca- calling students out in this way, right? So when I've been in schools and tried to encourage people to use cold calling, even as a as a base kind of an approach, uh, there's been lots of teachers who've said, "Oh, I don't feel comfortable calling on students when they don't know the answer," or you know, "I don't feel comfortable putting students on the spot." And so that's that end of the spectrum. Then there's your end of the spectrum when you're saying, "I'm actively quote unquote picking on students um, to make sure they're accountable." Um, how does how does that sit with you? Yeah, so um, I was actually doing some teacher training at one point uh, at university, just to, with the PGT students, the sort of teacher training um, people learning how to teach, and uh, I was modelling how it all works. And uh, one of the teachers, I like, basically vocalised disagreement with this, said, "I don't think this is right. I think you know you're humiliating them and stuff." But I think I didn't cold call for the first three years of my career. I didn't. I, the reason I didn't do it was not so much I didn't want to put them on the spot, but I didn't want to. I didn't like the fact that I knew that if I cold called, most of my kids wouldn't know the answer. And I basically therefore lied to myself. Don't lie to yourself. That's a phrase we use a lot for the students. And and to be honest, I I live by those words myself. It just seemed to um, invade my life in every way. But don't lie to yourself. And I think it's a way I I was lying to myself um, because I I knew that there were certain students who didn't know the the answer. And if I picked on them, that would be confirmed. So, So don't ask them. But ultimately everyone's losing out but in terms of the, the like putting people making people feel uncomfortable i think it's all about error culture if the students know that mistakes are the most important like up there with the most important things for learning then when you call them you cold call them and the reason they don't know is because they don't understand there's no shame in that and they're not embarrassed about it but equally if the reason that they can't explain it or they can't answer the questions because they weren't listening or they hadn't done the work or they weren't engaging with their partners when you ask them to do group work, then it's right they should be called out, I think. Like, it, they should feel uncomfortable about that and they should feel embarrassed if they weren't doing the right thing. Um, and I don't think uh, it's, uh, I, think, I think, how else do people learn? 
if you want to have high expectations of people, then you have to hold them to account like that. Um, but I th- it is just to reiterate, it's really important that you don't ever, I've heard stories about teachers sort of humiliating students for not understanding something when they're trying their best. And that's like horrible. And I would definitely not in any way endorse that sort of thing. You just have to be very clear about how you react and, and the reason for why you're reacting in that way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, I guess it's, it's okay to not understand, but it's not okay to not do your best or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. That's in, in a sentence, which is much more concise and helpful than what I just said. Yep. Absolutely. Nail on the head. That's great. So that's going to be one of my key takeaways from this podcast is that, that accountability. And I'll, I'll do a lot of thinking about what that could look like in my own classroom, how I can be better at holding students to, to account, but at the same time as supporting that, that culture of error. That's awesome. And I'm sure it'll be a, a topic that we, we, that idea of accountability, a bit of a thread through this podcast. Absolutely. Now, learning objectives is something that I treat very differently in different schools. Some teachers love them, some teachers hate them, some schools do them well, some stu- schools do them poorly. How do you, um, how do you use learning objectives in TTA? Yeah. So it's a really, really important part of our daily practice as a school, but also as a maths department. I, for, for a long time, when I started teaching, I just thought learning objectives and success, they were coupled with success criteria when I was learning to teach. And I just thought they were tick box exercises that we were told we had to do because that's what Ofsted were looking for. Ofsted is the, the regulatory body for education in the UK. As a school, we don't really ever mention them because... Again, it's like it's a bit like the exam thing. If if the reason you're doing everything is to satisfy Ofsted, then you've it's the wrong way round. You should be doing things, and Ofsted are checking why you're doing things and like analysing for that reason. Anyway, learning objectives I thought were just a tick box exercise, but actually, since I came to ETA, it took me some time to get on board with them. My colleagues challenged me about my views, and uh, <laughs> over time, I, I, I came to realise that they were right. They have to they have to outline the crux of the learning for that lesson. For the reason that, first of all, the students need to understand why they're what what they're doing and why they're doing it. Like, what's the point of students being in the lesson if they don't know what they're doing and why they're doing it? So every learning objective is pretty much in the form of I will learn blah 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 in order to do blah 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 blah. Um, and and that's that's the sort of way that's the sort of standard template. I will something so that something. But it's not just for the so it, the idea is anyone could come into any classroom and say to a student in your class, "What are you learning today?" And they'll tell you, and then they say, "Why?" And they'll be able to tell you. And if they can't, then that's I guess a question for the teacher: Why don't they know this stuff? Like it, maybe it's not an important. Maybe either the learning objective's wrong, or your lesson is not doing what it should do to make the learning objective important enough to the students. In terms of, but also since since I really got on board with them, I realised it's fundamental to planning. If uh, so, let's let, let's see the example of the recurring decimals again. The crux of the learning, from in my opinion, is to make the recurring parts match. And the reason you make the recurring parts match is so that you can convert recurring decimals to fractions. So the learning objective would be literally, I will learn how to make the recurring parts match in order to convert recurring decimals to fractions. So the crux and the reason. And from that point, once you've realized what the learning objective is and the crux of the learning, everything that you're doing in the lesson, everything you're planning in that lesson is geared towards that. And it directs the way that your lesson will unfold in the planning process and then in the lesson itself. And I think it helps a clarity of thought when planning and teaching. Again, with the chants, the chant for recurring decimals fractions is very simple. There's nothing really too amazing about these chants, but I just think when the students buy into them and it's a whole class in unison responding, is a very powerful um, strategy. But the teacher says, converting recurring decimals to fractions? And the students say, make the recurring parts match. And like that, and, and the idea is if they see those words on a paper or if they hear them, then they'll, they'll immediately think, 
Oh, yeah, recurring parts got a match. Um, and so whenever there's a chant that's relevant, and I would probably argue if there isn't a chant that's relevant, we're probably not thinking hard enough. But if there's a chant that's relevant, then we try and include it in the learning objective somehow. Made the learning objective mirror the chant, and the chant, therefore, is outlining the crux of the learning. Mm, that's great. How do you uh, introduce learning intention in the first place? Do you just read it and get the students to read it, or what do you do? Well, there's a, there's a whole school policy of at some point near the beginning of the lesson and um, students write the title, the learning objective um, and the date and then underline them all in purple pen. And I personally, I'm not even sure we've got a policy on this, but I, I tend to do it after the do now. Some teachers do it just like when the students walk in, it's on the board with the do now and they write it down and then get outside with the do now. And yeah, that's that. But it's really important. It's not that the writing of it, in my opinion, is and this is a bit, the school thinks the writing is very important. What's, what's definitely agreed upon is that they understand what it's talking about. You don't, it's not just something you say, write it down. You then, when they finish the do now, you go to the learning objective and you say, what on earth do we mean by recurring? Who knows what we mean by recurring? What is a recurring decimal? What do we mean by, we even say, well, like, what, do, what do we mean by convert? Does, anyone, does everyone know what convert means? And then you pick someone, make sure, and, and, and like, I guess this is the key words part. And we, we do write down the key words as well and underline them in purple pen. But if you're not talking about the learning objective in a big way in the lesson and referring to individual words within it and picking them apart and, and drawing the student's attention to them, then I guess, again, either the learning objective isn't right or the lesson isn't right because you're not making the learning objective important enough. Mm, that's great. That, that idea of constantly referring back to the learning intention, picking it apart is also really valuable. You're giving, giving me lots to think about, Sammy. This is great. <laughs> no, good. I'm glad. Um, you mentioned the, the idea of chance. Tell us more. So in its most basic it's ba- most basic form. The chant is just something the teacher says, and then the students in unison as a class sort of say back to the teacher. It's about culture setting. Probably most importantly, it's about getting the students just to remember the key strategy behind a particular skill or bit of knowledge or process. For example, like if so, the chant for perimeter, and you could pretty much it's, it's quite cool. You could ask any kid in the school, our school, in any year group once they've done week two of year seven, because I think that's where it comes up. What perimeter is? The chant for perimeter is the teacher goes perimeter is and the students go the distance around a 2D shape. And like it, it, it's such a reflex for them. It doesn't really it doesn't matter what set they're in or how old they are. They'll know that. And the idea is if they see the word perimeter, because that's the crux of understanding of being able to figure out the perimeter, they need to know it's the distance around a shape. Because once they know that, they're going to add up the sides and, and find the distance. So the idea is they see the word perimeter and they, they in their brain they go distance around a 2D shape. And that's the strategy for that question. I think it requires the teacher to buy in as much as it does the students. But I find if the teacher really embraces it, the students do likewise. Like it's quite, I'm just trying think what I was teaching my attendance today. Oh, it's gone out of my head. But let's say adding and subtracting fractions, find the LCM, lowest common multiple. Um, and I, I think within, we think super carefully about what needs to go into the chant because a lot of people would say adding and subtracting fractions make the denominators the same. But the problem with that is if, let's say, you've got six and eight as the denominators, a lot of students would want to multiply them together to make 48 as the, the denominator they're using. But obviously, like, mathematicians want to do things as simply as possible, and they want to use the lowest common multiple because it means they've got smaller numbers to deal with. So you want them to use 24, not 48. So it's not adding and subtracting fractions, make the denominator the same, it's adding and subtracting fractions, find the LCM. So it's, it, whilst they're nice and catchy and cute and stuff, there's a, there's a serious amount of sort of pedagogical thought that's gone into in, into that that idea but the t- so when the teacher is introducing the chant it'll be let's say after the students seem to have understood what's going on and when i say seem to have understood like checking for understanding is a very important part of of, of you know the learning process and let's say we've done mini whiteboards and it's clear the students have got it down and they at that point you'll be like guys this can be summarized as follows adding and subtracting fractions 
find the LCM. Let's go. Adding extracting fractions, find the LCM. And we and you do it 10 times. And it gets to the point where the students are rolling their eyes and then you're going, yeah, come on, let's go. And like you're, you're banging on the table and whatever. And, and like it's almost a tribal thing. And I mean, maybe this is just me. I, like, I don't know if <laughs> I probably shouldn't be suggesting this is the whole department, but for a fact, the whole department repeat the chants a lot to get the students on board and to show that it's not about like being cool or anything like that. And, and the students embrace it. And like, again, the accountability, if I'm looking really carefully when we're doing a chant, and if I see any students not doing it, I'll go on your own, Ethan. They'll, I'll do it with just them and me. Um, and they know that's coming if they don't do it. So that's, that's how you hold them to account for that. That's great. And then how, I mean, one of the things we know about memory, you talked about distributed practice before, was the importance of repetition and spacing that repetition over time, that retrieval over time so the students can actually remember it. Is there a systematic way in which you revisit the chance so that students remember it or, or how do you ensure that happens? So every time we do any kind of review of anything or consolidation of anything, hopefully there'll be a chant that's due with that particular topic. And so let's say if I'm doing a fluency do now, um, when I'm re- when I'm reviewing the do now after the students have had a go, then I'll definitely throw in the chant. It's probably not more systematic than that, to be honest, but it's just every opportunity that you get, use it. And obviously, like over time, that will have an impact. We've actually recently started making knowledge organisers. I know, so the school decided we wanted to make our own knowledge organizers. By knowledge organizers, I mean tools for the students to revise from, which sort of summarize the whole year's curriculum within a few pages of key knowledge. I know that, as well as a maths department, we first heard, we thought, maths is about learning dates and remembering things. It's not as simple as that. And then we realized that, obviously, the chants are the knowledge that we want the students to have. And so we've recreated our knowledge organizers entirely around chants, and we've summarized the whole curriculum just through chants and next to each chant there's a little worked example which tries to draw out the crux of the chant so it's not just a full worked example but we'll be highlighting for example in the lcm adding and subtracting fractions chant it'll all be about if it's six and eight is 48 not 24 but we won't bother finishing the question so the students understand key part of it again like that that was that was a it's a really good process for for teachers to do things like that it, it took a huge amount of time it was actually quite a good use of lockdown one back in march 2020 april 2020 um work wasn't as busy at that point because we didn't we hadn't understood we hadn't established how we were going to do home learning and we were setting consolidation work but i remember one <laughs> i get i get people in the department mock me for this because they said it's not a 40-hour job but i took 40 hours a full working week to make the whole year 10 knowledge organizer with the chance and the examples <laughs> but like I, regardless of whether or not that was a productive um use of those 40 hours the process of thinking so deeply about how to condense huge topics into one snappy phrase was so useful and i think that's that's the real skill i i, I knew when i was coming on to this podcast that talking just in general about things I'm, i i tend to waffle on somewhat but when it comes to teaching a specific mathematical topic that I, I know how to teach I use so few words and it's so clear because of the chance and because as a department we've talked about the best way of teaching it we've talked about the real crux of a learning episode and so the whole teacher persona thing is like it's like a you step into it's like you're stepping on stage and you've got to remember certain lines and it's like it's a different way of being and it definitely helps the students understand what's going on much more when you use really concise language Amazing. I mean, this is so great, Sammy, because what you do, I mean, the, the work I've done around cognitive load theory and things like that, like what you do is just so well aligned with that. So to give a couple of examples, you know, you talked about economy of language using few words and things like that, and just really boiling it down to this this chant idea. That is really the essence of 
condensing something down to just the intrinsic load, like just the things that students need to know in order to achieve the, the learning objective that you have and cutting all the other crap out. And like you said, spending that time, that 40 hours, or however long it might take to actually be, get absolute clarity on what it is that students need to know and to summarize it in a way that's going to be used time and time and time again is just so valuable. So you've got that, then you've got the idea of the repetition, the retrieval over time and the spacing of that, but in in authentic context texts so that students are actually, you know, retrieving those ideas and seeing how they link to new examples each time builds on the flexibility of that knowledge, which is fantastic. And then also the uh, even the way that the chants are actually framed. So where where you say something like perimeter is and then students say what it is if I try to remember the distance around a 2D shape, right? Bingo. <laughs> That's how experts have knowledge stored in their memories. And the way I talk about it in the, in the book is situation action pairs. So an ex a novice, they'll see a situation, but they won't actually be able to classify it very well and they won't know what action to take, right? Someone who's in the intermediate phase might see a situation, but then it might take them a while to identify the action that they want to take um, that's going to lead to success. But an expert will have this automatic and almost involuntary reaction to a situation that brings up quickly and automatically and without any conscious thought the solution or the action that they need to take. And so that's what you're actually doing. You're directly embedding these situation action pairs into your students' long-term memories. So to me, there's very little, <laughs> very little surprise that your students are doing really, really well. Yeah, well, thanks. It's nice, it's nice to know that like there's um, like a, a solid sort of cognitive science uh, sort of support for it. But um, yeah, like I, as I, I, I don't know if I've already said, but like, obviously I did my master's, but I, I don't come from the, the most academic background. I know that a lot of people on your podcast are seriously are, like big in research and like, I, I couldn't even touch them for, for talking about that sort of thing. Um, and I like to think what we're doing has got decent sort of reasoning behind it but it's, it's definitely and we and and the thought for sure like we've thought so hard about what we want to do and often informed by theory but often just like it's a gut feeling um so it's, it's a, yeah it's really nice to hear that it's kind of confirming what you're what, what you know about um from that perspective mm, that's awesome and yeah you say it's a gut feeling and you know i could add to that often you know when teachers think really hard about what's happening in their classroom and when they really really pay attention often they can derive a lot of the findings from research because you know it's just it's basically a, a, a form of action research or micro research in your own classroom you're literally carrying out experiments you're seeing if they work and you're constantly iterating so what becomes the gut instinct of a person who's actually has a high level of expertise is usually quite aligned with with the theory and that's something you know if people want to look more into that gert gigerenza does a lot on intuition and things like that and there's a really great econ talk podcast about that and peps mccray also mentioned the work of gert gigerenza as well so that's awesome. You've, you've talked a little bit about kind of introducing concepts and when you get to a good summary point, drawing upon the, the chant and things like that. Did you want to add anything that you think is important in terms of how you introduce concepts and do the explicit instruction up front? Yeah, so how we introduce concepts, it very much depends on, on the topic. So, for example, so like definitely we care about conceptual learning and conceptual knowledge. We want students to have a deeper understanding of things than maybe would be the norm in most classrooms. And I think how that manifests itself in practice is at the beginning of a, of a new topic, we often, it's quite slow. 
sometimes I've come away from a lesson and said that that's really taken a long time and there's not that much to show for it yet. But I think laying that foundation really carefully means that it's solid and then you can build from there like nicely and you start to accelerate. So in terms of like, some examples about how, um, like what sort of things we do to introduce topics, when we're teaching solving equations, for example, it starts off, we like, we do it. I think it's generally accepted in the department that the best way of doing it we think is to have a scale about like an actual diagram of the scales. I think someone's even got an actual scale weighing scale, like an old school weighing scales where it's like either side there's, there's a stand and they can, uh, and the students can like put like weights on it and stuff and see how it balances. But like the, the nice one that we've done is uh, drawing on the board, the scales and making it into a game. And you say, you've got like three bags of sweets on, on this side and you've got 10 and you've also got 10 individual sweets on this side. And on the other side, you've got one, uh, like I don't know, five bags of sweets. And then you've got two individual sweets. The game is, how can you figure out or can you figure out how many sweets are in one bag um but the rule is you've got to keep it balanced at all times the scales aren't allowed to change and so the kids like they they, they reason it out they talk in their groups i guess this is one of those times where like it's not inquiry-based learning but it's not it's definitely not direct instruction and you're allowing them the time to think about it and kind of try things out and it doesn't always work and obviously like the teacher has to intervene and guide when necessary it can't be chaos and like because otherwise that is proper wasted time but eventually they realize it's about removing all the bags from one side leaving a certain number of bags and some sweets. And then it's all about removing all the sweets on the other side. And then you figure out the remaining bags are equal to some sweets. And then you can figure out how many sweets are in one bag. And you kind of formalize it on the board and you write down like three and you kind of draw a diagram for a bag and you write it all down what's happened with an equal sign. And then you rub out the, it's really nice, you rub out like the bottom part of the bag and it looks like an X. And like you say, basically like this, what this is guys, this is what we're doing here is we're solving an equation. And, and the rules that we played in the game are the same as the rules for, for solving equations. You have to, what you do to one side you have to do to the other side to keep a balance and if you have three bags over here and you want to get rid of them you have to take away three bags and the idea is successful and there's a chance for this successful elimination inverse operation do it to one side do it to the other to keep the balance and so it takes a while and i think actually teaching this way rather than like making something jump from one side to the other is harder to embed but from that point once they realize it's all about inverse operations then they can really start to push on with it so that's, that's, that's one end of the scale of the spectrum. Like the other end of the spectrum is like the other day I was teaching my um, year 10 class algebraic proportion, a proportionality with the proportionality symbol. And I, like at that point, the context was that we were trying to, we had end of year assessment coming up. I know it's not a difficult, it's about writing the general formula, finding K and then find the specific formula by substitution. And I just, at that point, I think the best thing to do was a silent worked example. This is this question. Everyone put your pens down and watch what I do. And then after that, what did I do here? What did I do here? What did I do here? Why did I do that? This is how we do algebraic proportion. Now you have a go on your mini whiteboard or I guide you through it. And then we do a mini whiteboard and then we do some practice. And so the approach varies greatly um, depending on what's appropriate. And I think it's important that we have that flexibility because uh, as I already said, engagement's everything and, and it, you, you don't want to miss opportunities because you're so hell-bent on making sure that every minute of lesson is, is like maximized learning. Ultimately, teaching's fun. Like teaching's such fun and learning should be really fun. And it's, you don't want to ever lose sight of some of the things that make it fun. Mm as well as well as the fact i think it's good for learning that that's awesome sammy i love how you've put that because often one of the things i see that makes me really sad is when people kind of buy into a certain approach to teaching whether it be you know we're always doing explicit instruction or we're always doing inquiry or something like that and the phrase that you use there was like that leads to missed opportunities 
And I think that the way that you look at it in terms of letting the content drive the process, thinking about, you know, am I teaching equations or am I teaching, um, you know, it's some, am I introducing equations, which is something that, as you've just described through your example, is something that could be de- explored really well through a kind of conceptual model um, and students having a think, think for themselves and trying to work some things out. And then you kind of formalizing and generalizing that. You know, if we're focused on always doing worked examples, we actually miss opportunities like that that are perhaps one of the more effective ways of introducing it. But similarly, if we're focused on always having discussions and thinking about things, there there are concepts where it's just better to show students a process, get them to do the process a few times, then maybe go go into the why a little bit. And so actually being really responsive and thoughtful about the content and the way that that should naturally drive the instruction, I think, is something that many of us as teachers um, could could do very well to, to pay closer attention to. Yeah, for sure. And I think also, like, if I can just add, I mentioned before about shoehorning real-world examples into, into certain topics, but... And I, like, I'm really not up for that in certain situations when it's not relevant or appropriate and it just seems tenuous and just confuses the students. But equally, some maths is like is literally directly about the world. For example, like if you're teaching compound interest, it would be tragic to not talk about how like loans work or how banks, how like savings accounts work. Or when you're talking about depreciation, you'd be missing the point if you're not talking about things that lose value over time. And if you can tie that into, I saw one of the teachers in my department once uh, just project, it was actually masterful the way he did it. it was, I was I was in awe of this moment. Um, he basically, they've just finished the do now and they're just getting their books out. And he said, he said to, he caught one of the girls in his class eye and he sort of went, what are you laughing at? And she went, what? And you know, well, no, what are you laughing at? Are you smiling at me? What are you laughing at? And everyone, the, the class is like, what's going on? What's going on? What's it like something like nothing to do with learning is happening. And uh, he went, I know why you're laughing. You're laughing at me because you saw me in my car last night, didn't, didn't, didn't you? And she's like, and he, he, he had seen him in the car. Um, and he's got this like, like old school convertible is a bit of a banger. And like, <laughs> it, the kids find it funny. And uh, they were like, a few of the kids were like, yeah, yeah sir. Like, that, what is that about? That car. And uh, <laughs> he was like, well, the thing is about this car, most cars most cars they, they lose a lot of value once you buy them but this is actually a collector's item guys and he, and he got a picture of it up on the on the board and he showed them this car and uh, he said like what actually happens with this particular car because it's a collector's item is it increases in value and uh, before they knew it he'd gone into like a really clean explanation of compound interest um and the, but the transition from the do now to that was it was like an art form like the, the way that he planned it from that moment when he obviously saw her the night before and she'd laughed at his car and he was like we're doing compound interest tomorrow and uh, this is definitely going to be like my hook if you want and it, it just made it so so relatable to the students and the students were so interested and I think that sort of situation if you don't introduce it by a real world example what's the point of, of like learning about it but obviously sometimes it's not at all relevant and, and you definitely shouldn't try. So, yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, I'm curious, in, you've talked a bit about the note-taking. So after you, say you've done that, that introducing equations thing with the sweet bags and then I loved how you wipe the bottom off and it turns into an <laughs> it's, like a bit, it's, a bit, it's a bit corny, basically. Like, it is good. It's nice. It's nice to do. That's actually amazing. I definitely need to do that. In terms of students recording something in their notebook, what do they record? Yeah, so we ha- we feel like um, as a, it's a part of our handbook is that we never want students just to copy things down from the board. That phrase "don't lie to yourself" um, rings to mind or leaps to mind because uh, when student when when you do an example and then you say to students, "Right, copy this down in your books," you've got absolutely no idea if they've understood it. And 
says there is merit in the students having a good worked example that's clean and that makes sense and they can use to refer back to for sure but copying seems just like a waste of time i think that if they don't understand what's going on and so let's say you do a worked example you question do you check so many whiteboards do they understand or do they seem to understand right now from the best available evidence and at that point you say okay rub out some of the numbers maybe rephrase it very slightly now you're going to do this on your own your book and so they get the clean example but obviously they might make a mistake but mistakes learn from them and we pick up our purple pens and we uh, and if they have got it wrong then they they don't just correct it they explain what they did wrong and they explain how to do it in their own words and if they can't do it in their own words and they don't understand it well enough and they need to ask a question and so that's that's the process of making notes in our lessons and um, we don't copy things down and when when things do go wrong the purple pen is the the sort of reflective instrument which enables the students to test themselves and also for the teacher and also their peers because we and we haven't talked about group work yet but that's coming up but uh, like the peer accountability the peers checking the purple pen notes because again if they can't articulate it in their own words they don't understand it well enough and something needs to be done about it so yeah that's that's that process that's awesome. And to link that to, to research again, there's a framework I've been exploring quite a bit recently. It's called the ICAP framework. And this basically describes levels of engagement, cognitive engagement that people can take with their learning. So ICAP, so you actually start with a P. So P is for passive. So this is if students are just sitting there listening. Um, they might actually be learning, uh, but they're not actually doing any anything f physical. So that's P, passive. A is active. So this is when they're engaging, but they're really just engaging in a way that's kind of replicating what the teacher's doing. So this is what you were saying, just copying it down, don't fool yourself kind of a thing or don't lie to yourself. So that's passive, active. C is constructive. And so this may include some active stuff, some some copying down of things, but this constructive is really well aligned with your purple pen idea, right? It's like, what are you actually adding yourself to this explanation? Because and how are you connecting this new information to what's already in your long-term memory to form those strong links? So that's passive, active, constructive. And the last one is interactive. And that's the last step that you talked about there, which was, you know, if you can't actually already put it in your own words, you actually need to, to interact with someone else. You need to have a conversation so that you can kind of co-construct um, or get some ideas from them in an interactive way to then do the constructive work yourself. So again, um, what you're doing, Sammy, is really well aligned with, um, <laughs> with things I've been exploring recently. Good to hear. <laughs> um, so you, something I was interested to read in your handbook is that is this idea of independent practice and making sure that students do 20 minutes per each two lessons. Now, for, for a lot of teachers, I'd look at that and they'd say, well, that's not, that's not very much independent practice, only 20 minutes over every two lessons. And I, I'm, I'm guessing your lessons are 50 minutes or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what that's referring to. Yeah, so tell us what happens to this independent practice and um, how did you come up with that 20 minutes per two lessons? Yeah. So first of all, to be clear, the independent practice um, doesn't is to do with new material. So it's not doesn't include the do now because um, otherwise it's a bit of a cop out. So because we place such emphasis on questioning and accountability, checking for understanding, but all the cultural things that we do to reinforce the students engagement takes time. It takes more time. And so introducing a new topic or a new concept, getting the students to talk about it sometimes, getting the students to uh, like questioning the students to see uh, or to hold them to account when they're listening testing their understanding on mini whiteboards, trying to trick them um, to test for misconceptions. Or I do it. We do a lot of that constantly trying to confuse them to see if they actually understand that you've not obviously initial parts of learning, but once we've gone through some things like 
asking leading questions down the wrong avenue um, and seeing if they agree with you and then being like, you still don't understand. It's, it's like a real test. But all, all these things take a lot of time. And so only at the point when you're, you've got your 80% threshold in terms of like apes in the class seem to understand what's going on. Then we do the independent practice. But over the course of one, let's say 50 minute lesson, that might not be like, you might not have 20 minutes in that time to, for that to happen. Um, so we say 20 minutes across two lessons because at some point in those two lessons, they should have reached a point where they've got enough, they've got enough knowledge within the room and that they could, they can have successful independent practice. And like 20 minutes is a minimum. Obviously, maybe more would be sometimes better, sometimes maybe not. Um, I sometimes have like when we review tests, we usually we do loads of tests, by the way, which because if you have an error culture, then you see tests as like amazing for learning, nothing to worry about because they just show you the things that you understand, the things that you still need to work on. And so we do we do a lot of review of tests as well. And the review is usually done in group work, assuming there is the knowledge in the room for that to be effective. And so when you're reviewing a test, there won't be any independent practice probably. Maybe like moments when the students are reflecting in purple pen on their own. But that, I guess that's not really independent. That's not the traditional form of independent practice either. So I think the reason that it's only 20 minutes across two lessons is because there's so many other things that are going on in the lesson that are really, really important for the learning. We have a phrase which we like to say, which is culture eat strategy for breakfast. And my understanding of that, which I've taken for the last four years, so shame if I've got it wrong, is that it doesn't really matter what the teacher does in terms of their explanation or in terms of like how sound their pedagogy is or in terms of their behavior management, if the culture in the class is not one where the students are bothered about learning and care. But if the students care and if they're motivated and if they want to learn both in lessons and out of lessons, they're going to learn. If you give them like, as long as they've got like the odd tool, like for example, the online learning platform or, you know, they've got, they've got friends who know about stuff, they will find a way of learning. And that is far more powerful than even the most sublime teacher explanation. Like teacher teach explanation to students who are only passively half listening, it's just no, no one's learning anything. And uh, so spending loads of time embedding culture and routines is always an investment, in, in my opinion. And I think in the opinion of our, of our, of our department, um, even if it means that, like, I'll be honest, like, our, probably a big weakness for us as a department is we, we don't finish, not enough classes finish the scheme of work, the curriculum plan for the year. Um, and it's possibly at the, expe- like, it's at the expense of the, like, those last couple of topics in the, the year, which end up being shoehorned in at some other later date and maybe like not as well as they could have been. But what we gain in all that is that the students are super motivated, um, both independently outside of lessons and also within lessons. They really enjoy maths. And like, I, I, I think the results suggest that the, uh, the method has some sense to it. So, uh, yeah. So how do you, um, talk, talk to us more. You've talked, you've alluded to a, a few things, but talk to us more about how you actually build that culture in which students and the word that keeps on coming to mind to me, students are, are hungry. They're hungry to, to learn. Yeah. There's also, like, obviously, I, I remember one of my modules in the last was about motivation. Uh, you definitely know a lot more about the, the research about motivation than I do. But over time, holding students to account like we do um, and making sure that lessons have lots of interesting features to them, whilst also making sure we have a sound pedagogical approach that enables kids to consolidate their learning, it leads to them being successful. And I think the success that they experience, like they, they, when, they, when a class open up their 
exam at the end of the year and they know how to do the questions, then they're going to go for it and they're going to really try. And when they review the paper, they're going to be really motivated to figure out what they did wrong because they care because they've put in a lot of time and all those measures that the teacher, they didn't even realize they were being exposed to, but the accountability measures the teacher was putting in were designed. Like, you know, we talked before about cold calling and making students feel uncomfortable. If you don't cold call those students that you think might not know, then those students that might not know are going to think, I can get away with it. And they're not going to try and they're not going to listen and they're ultimately not going to be very successful. And if they're not very successful, they think, well, I'm not good at maths. What's the point? And uh, I think that is how we embed that culture is being really super committed every and I think so we, we sometimes have teachers come and visit and, and like kind of just walk around it's quite weird we have like a lot of get visitors and they walk around our classrooms they like so all the mass classrooms are next to each other in a row of six and uh, you've got sort of sometimes 25 to I don't know, 30 guests like walking like mass teachers who are just interested in how we do things walking up and down into the different classrooms and there's a sort of common thread about this culture that we set and um, with the chance and the group work and the accountability and the questioning and the checking for understanding and at the end of it i think there are probably some people that come away and go wow that was amazing i think probably most people they probably go away from it and think oh, that was pretty good i guess it's not that it's not that amazing it's like it's just what you know, like it's just good practice but i think the key to it is when that good practice is every single lesson every minute of every lesson and every single week and every year, then over time that has a huge impact because the expect- expectations never lower ever in, in all in all in all respects. Um, we haven't talked about behaviour, but obviously it's a given. The behaviour learning has to be the teacher has to have complete control over the classroom for all these other things to work. You can't hold a student to account in a high stakes environment if the students don't respect you. Like they're gonna they're gonna kick off. But um, so like all those things are kind of almost go without saying. Mm. Yeah, that was another question. When when you do kind of when you kind of do put it on a student and you hold them to account, do you have students who just tap out? Yeah, so the, so the no opt-out aspect of the Douglamov questioning, which is, uh, so in terms of when, you, when you're questioning someone, they go, I don't know, which obviously happens, happens to everyone, happens in every class. It's about how you manage that. And like a very simple strategy is you say, the first, when they say you don't know, they say, what was the question? Because you want to check if the reason they've, they've said, I don't know, is because they weren't listening, in which case it's a behavioral issue. And you don't want, it's not about, it's not about your pedagogy or anything like that. And you deal with that however you deal with your behavior. So we don't have a very intentionally don't have a binary behavior system in school. And um, by binary behavior, I mean like, you know, one warning. And then if you fail again, you're in isolation for a day or whatever. It's very, very flexible and very much up to teachers' own preferences. It's that autonomy idea again. So teachers deal with that however they want. If the student says uh, they are immediately able to repeat the question, they know that therefore they've been listening, then at that point you say, okay, fair enough. You've got a number of options available. You can either cold call, um, so no hand up, question someone else to see if they like maybe someone of a similar level of attainment to see if like they what, what you expected them to answer is a fair thing to be able to expect of everyone or you could if you know that the knowledge is in the room you could put it down to group work and give them time to talk about it in their groups and then if they still can't do it then you have a you you, you lay into <laughs> the group work accountability you lay into their partner who's meant to be helping them and has done a bad job that's a very very powerful tool which uh, is a bit of a game changer for group work but anyway we'll come back to that or you can just reteach something and you say okay fair enough this is this let me let me guide you through it through questioning you've obviously not got there so why have we done this why have we done that what's the next thing we do what's the next thing we do bingo there we go now tell me once more in your own words now write it down in purple pen okay and then i'm going to test you on it in five minutes or don't even tell them but you just go back in five minutes and tell, tell them what that thing was again and if they can't do it again what does your purple pen note say and if it turns out they haven't written a purple pen note then you lay it on them again and like there's various things 
like all these different kind of you could draw a massive flow chart about what to do and when according to what's happened and the situation in the classroom um and i think just obviously like as the, as a teacher gets more experience then they become more adept at picking the right thing for the right moment um so that's how i would deal with it when a student taps out so to speak i guess if if, if there's something more underlying like if a student is saying like if if, if they say i don't know and you say what was the question they go i don't know and uh like for me at that point i'd just send them out and like it doesn't have to be a it doesn't have to be shouting or anything like that. It could just be like, go step outside, please. And you get on with the lesson. You go talk to them when there's when there's a moment. You know, what's happening here? Like, what? They, obviously, there's some sort of issue. And you know, all the behavioural strategies that that people people use um, to great effect. So yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was wondering about. If you you know you do that the night dad or you you ask the student the next day about the the thing that they've done in the do now, and you've said I'm I'm going to ask you again tomorrow, and they say oh, I don't know you don't have these students who kind of persistently just kind of drop off or, or if, if, yeah, if they do, if, like <laughs> I remember that there was a moment earlier this year, I was teaching perimeter of a circle sector to my year 10 set two, so lower kind of lower, higher ability, sort of middle of the road kind of thing in terms of their attainment. And, uh, They'd forgotten it. I said, fine, we're going to do this again. 15, I'm going to explain it properly. I'm going to question you and check you understand. It's coming up at the end of this week. Be ready. And they, it comes to the end of the week and I do it again. And it's very like they haven't got it. And uh, I, like, I really, really just know it. Like, a, it's obviously all a pantomime. I, I, I don't, <laughs> the idea of getting annoyed at people, I like really angry for, for students not being able to remember something or not, like, is, is like in everyday life is ridiculous. But in the context of the pantomime that is the classroom, you make it into the, the be all and end all. This is ridiculous, guys. We've wasted 15 minutes of the last lesson and you guys are still clueless. And then you start picking on people to say their purple pen notes. And you're like, what did you write down on, in purple pen on Tuesday? And Or you say, what, you get their partner to read it out, to really let, raise it. And like, they, they've got no out here. Their partner reads it out and you say, either they've written down something nonsense or they've just copied down my working and they haven't written down a reflective note. Or they've written something down, they've just forgotten it. And then you're like, well, why didn't you read it through at the beginning of the do now today? Why are you being lazy? Like, whatever it may be, as I say, it's, uh, it's a bit high, it's quite high stakes and it can be a little bit intense. But I guess the worst case scenario, they're still not getting it. They stay behind at lunchtime and, and they, they sit there until they can explain it to me. That's, like, that's my most common detention, if you want to call it that, is when I've given them some work and they don't understand, they, they, I've given them time, they've not got it, and they have to stay behind with their partner or their group, if it was a group thing, um, until they're able to explain it to me. And at the point where they can explain it to me, they can go and have their lunch. You know, like that, that's, that's, the, that's the vibe. Mm. In terms of, I'm just thinking, I'm imagining a student in a classroom and, you know, they might have, I don't know, five or six classes across the day. And in every class, say they're a, a student who, who achieved, is, has been achieving a bit lower than the other students and they're struggling a bit. In every class, the teacher, there's like two concepts that the teacher's like, you need to remember this, you need to remember this, right? That's like a lot for the students to track what they need to remember for the next day. Do you have do they do you have systems? Is it like students have a notebook and they write down or their diary or calendar where they write it down? Or are students just so used to being held to account that when they go home, they sit down and be like, oh, okay, first period I had maths. What happened in maths? Oh, yeah, uh, Mr. Kempner told me to do this. Okay, I've got to bone up on that now and then do it and then all right next i had english what happened there okay H how are students supported to kind of keep track of those things that they know they're going to be held, held accountable to yeah so that's that's a definitely a, a question that i don't think as a school we have nailed 
I think the accountability in maths is like a particularly strong feature of maths specifically in the school. And so I don't think it's not quite the same level across the school. And so for that reason, maybe students perhaps place more emphasis in their own heads sometimes with the maths because they know they're going to be held to account to the nth degree. I think like, you know, when we when we crack that, I, it, like, I can I can tell you, like, put simply, we have we've made knowledge organizers organizers this year which are designed to consolidate all the students learning into a few pages across the all subjects and we put a big thing in before each exam like major examination period about how to revise about what good revision is about testing yourself and and how to use that in tandem with the knowledge organizer but in terms of like on a day-to-day do they reflect at the end of the day and sort of are they taught those those practices no not really um i think it's down to the individual subject teacher to reinforce it and it obviously can be quite frustrating if you don't see them for three or four days or whatever it is particularly as a as a a core teacher we're very lucky and we see them every day and it makes it easier to embed these cultures whereas if you only see them once a week for one period then obviously it's, it's much harder so it's a good question and it's not one I necessarily have an answer to. So sorry. That's okay. No, it's good to think about because that's something that I think about a bit because, you know, in the times that I do hold students to account and I say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about this tomorrow or something, I know often they will just like, they'll leave the classroom and then like that's the end. <laughs> like yeah. they literally just don't think about it again. And then, you know, I call them up the next day and they're like, oh, I don't know. It's like, what did you do? It's like, oh, I forgot. And it's like, they just. What do you do? Yeah, what do you do? Like, I do understand that, like, just being holding them to account over and over again will work, but it's yeah, that yeah. it's that it's that across the board thing where, you know, I can place a lot of pressure on students to do do X, Y, or Z today and then tomorrow, but then whether that comes at the cost of their other things or whether that happens in three classes and they get totally overwhelmed and if they don't actually have strategies to do that, it's just it's 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 a bit of a question for me. Do you know, it's, it's a really interesting question. I wonder if every single lesson that my students had to deal with was the same as maths in terms of the accountability expectations, whether that would even be sustainable. It's a good question. I think I've just like a couple of things that I do do to facilitate remembering stuff and doing stuff I want to do. It's quite normal in our department for teachers to grab like a certain number of kids in a specific class and be like, we're going to IT now and I'm going to be there whilst you do your homework. Or And like obviously that's giving up their own time, but it's, it's quite normal, normal practice in our department. But I don't know if that's sustainable. I, I happen to be, I'm 30 years old. I don't have any kids. I'm really passionate about my job. And apart from, you know, socializing and playing some football that's all I really do and I've got the time to do that and I've got the time to give up outside school hours to to help students like that and I don't think it's fair to expect that as a norm from teachers and and I think if teachers have more going on than I do if if people got families for example like this is not doable I think calling home and and like we're in regular contact with parents every day and just communicating expectations to parents. They've got to do this work for tomorrow. They're going to have a retest tomorrow. If they fail the retest, they're going to have to stay in at lunchtime and do some extra work and whatever. Like We do all those things, and sometimes that's effective. Sometimes, sadly, it's not, because um, what goes on at home is, is part of the problem sometimes. Um, and I guess at that point, you've you got to try even harder to make the, the hours in school count. It's a really difficult question, a good one. Yeah, it's a challenge. I, I think, so, I mean, something that I've been thinking more about recently as well is in, in line with this kind of self-regulated learning thing is this this cycle of plan, monitor, evaluate, or, you know, kind of it could even be anticipate, monitor, evaluate. So um, to me, part of, part maybe part of answering this question about how to help students organize themselves is just helping them to go through that cycle to really think, you know, in the moment when you're like, I'm going to hold you accountable, 
getting them to think, how am I actually going to, what are the chances of you forgetting that you need to do this? Like when you leave the classroom, what do you think is actually going to happen? So that's a plan part. And then the monitor, hopefully when they leave, they kind of, they, ha- they do think about it more because you've done, gone through that pl- planning process. And then there's an evaluate. It's the next day part of the conversation is, and this is something that for, for many years, I would just say, you know, you didn't do your homework. That's not good enough. Um, you need to do better next time, right? And that's where the conversation would stop. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and sometimes that works because sometimes students know, but, but pushing that into the zone where it's more actual reflection, it's like, tell me what, tell me what actually happened. So like you left the classroom yesterday, then what happened? When you got home, you know, what, what, what actually, what did you do? And often students will say things like, oh, you know, I, I got home and I knew I was meant to do my homework, but then, you know, this game was on the TV or this thing came up on YouTube and I just started watching that. And then before I knew it was 10 p.m. or like something. Like that. So they'll actually be able to articulate what happened. And then you can say, well, well, then I, I've been experimenting with say, okay, well, well, you know, how could you actually change your environment? How could you change one of the factors such that doesn't happen tomorrow? Right. And if, and, played out over time this kind of cycle of plan monitor evaluate and you know if we can help students to be reflective students um, they can actually learn to develop these strategies without us explicitly being like you need to write in your diary when that might not work for every kid or something but it's actually going through that cycle that I think may, may unlock some of these ideas for sure and I think also the question of like somehow fostering intrinsic motivation that is the answer to that really i guess if you can so the i meant i i said uh, autonomy is a big part of our school um life in terms of how we run things but we we don't do any kind of it's called if then rewards if you do this then you will do you will get this as a reward and we we don't have like bikes or cinema trips if you have 100 attendance and little things like that little nudge ideas to and and the expectation is that you do the right thing and if you do the right thing consistently then sometimes and we the only thing we do in terms of like we have a each teacher has a formal recognition each week and um, which gets read out in assembly and a letter sent home to their parents and it's like the best thing the teacher's seen that week across the whole school and little things like that as a, as the kind of the reward it means it makes the action itself work like the the point that the action is the reason that you do it rather than any other other reason and i guess you know, this is not going to answer or solve the, the question or problem that you've suggested about to, how to make students care when they leave the classroom and do the thing that you want them to do. But if over time you foster intrinsic motivation to learn and to, to want to do well, then that surely will uh, will mean that when they leave the classroom, they do the right thing that you want them to do. But and they, you know, how do you foster intrinsic motivation? Eh? That is a that's a real question for another time i do think the success like in terms of the culture and the getting students to be successful and that makes them motivated obviously like that there is probably an element of intrinsic motivation going on there um but i couldn't for one second profess to have the solution to fostering intrinsic motivation um yeah. <laughs> obviously all no right well you, you mentioned i had peps on a couple of a couple of months ago and peps's number one tip for fostering motivation was actually secure success so you know you've hit You've said basically the same thing as Peps on the on the motivation front there as well. On in terms of that, like if then rewards thing, I'll just direct people and I'll put in the show notes a really great link, a really great blog post by Adam Boxer from TTA. I can't remember what it's called, but he contrasts the if then reward approach, which is really intrinsic, to the now that approach, which is now that you've done this we're going to have a pizza party or we're going to acknowledge your work or whatever it might be. So that encapsulates really nicely what you were just talking about there. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely.
Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Sammy stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the EWR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript for each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to that spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary is a big one. We've covered so many important ideas and tips in this podcast, and I really wanted to remember and reflect upon it all as a source of ideas for my own teaching. So in this summary, you'll find takeaways on do nows, learning objective, explicit instruction, chance, peer accountability, and all the other fantastic and important instructional strategies and approaches discussed in this podcast. So if you'd like a memorable summary of this episode of the EGBR podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, then go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the average donation of $5 per month. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show receive a detailed summary, and to help to keep the ERRR sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Sammy Kempner. All right, finally, we've buried the lead a bit, but finally we can get onto this idea of collaboration <laughs> and, and group work and, and teamwork. And, and where, I'd, where I'd be keen to start with that is, is the actual formation of the groups and the pairs. So maybe you, you could tell us a little bit about you know, when you do pair work, when you do group work, what's the difference? But also crucially, how do you actually decide if you are the people who decide, how do you decide who works with who? Yeah, so how this, there's only, there's only as far as I can, as I thought through, there's three moments when you do group work. And when you do group work kind of determines how they are allowed to be sat for the group work. So the first, and in my opinion, most powerful use for group work is getting them to teach each other stuff when the knowledge is in the room. And that's a really important point when the knowledge is in the room and when they know that the knowledge is in the room, like they've had work marked or they've been, they've been shown that they've got it right. If the knowledge is in the room, it's easiest to facilitate group work when they're sat as a group of, let's say, three to three or four is probably best. Five is running the risk of like someone, even with the best intentions, someone being left behind. Even if the group's trying their best to look after everyone, sometimes like there's a lot of people there. Um, two, the problem with having two people when they're going to teach each other is it requires half the class to, if they're all split into pairs, half the class to have the knowledge. And so therefore the threshold is higher um, before you can do it in terms of like, when when you can get away with do again teach each other so if that's the purpose teaching each other then groups of three or four would be ideal i would say but the other reasons you might want to do group work are first of all processing or practicing ideas so if you let's say you're doing the i do we do you do part of like structure of lesson teach of like teaching um the we do is traditionally like the teachers guiding the example through questioning or what have you but Equally, it could be the students guiding each other and helping each other to process the idea that they've just been taught. Um, and in that situation, pairs would probably be okay. Again, like there's a greater chance of success if they've got groups of three or four because it's more likely that someone's going to know within each group what's going on. And like, you obviously, the danger with processing and practicing is, and I've actually talked about this with Adam, is there so if there's lots of misconceptions around that could be flying around, 
they may end up practicing the wrong thing for five minutes and just reinforcing a misconception. And so it's quite, you've got to be careful with it. Again, if you have them in groups of three or four, and you know that in each group, you've positioned one of your highest attainers in the class, and you, you, you're fairly, you know those students fairly well, and you know the likelihood they're going to have misconceptions is fairly low, then it's, it's more safe to do it that way. The final reason, processing, uh, out my head, that's a shame. Uh, anyway, I'll come back to me. That's right. Um, anyway, generally, groups of three or four. Generally, what I like to do is sit the absolute highest attainer in the class with the absolute lowest attainer in the class next to them, and then like pair them off like that, kind of all the way through the class. Because and then and you you say very clearly, you don't have like it doesn't it doesn't have to be said. You don't necessarily have to say you are the person who's going to be teaching this one, but the sort of the mantra is if you know that you've got something right or you know you understand something, your job is to make sure your partner knows as well. And I think like I, I talked before about right at the beginning of the podcast, I said, well, something I really care about is making students and um, like the purpose of school is to try and make students contributing members of society that care about each other and care about people and stuff. I think beyond math for a second, and I, I, I'm fully, I think group work is a phenomenal tool to facilitate math learning. But beyond that, sort of more widely, if students get in the habit of looking after each other and taking responsibility for each other's learning, and they, they it's honestly, it's beautiful to see, like sometimes the way that the students take care of each other and they like I'm trying to get one of one of my classes at the moment, my year eight. So I've got top set in year eight, and they're they're, they're phenomenal. And like, I'm trying to get them to see every test that, that we do, every little topic test or whatever. I want them to see the first thing they do when they get their papers back is to check their partner score to see how good a job their partner's done, like how good a job they've done at helping their partner over that unit. And I think if they can take that, famously transfer is difficult. I know that that's uh, that's the consensus among cognitive scientists, but maybe naively believe that there is something to helping and supporting each other in that context and like more generally out of the classroom looking after each other and making sure people understand and know what's going on and helping so yeah that's that's a very long answer to how i see them but Mm. that's great do you do you find that any of the students have any of the high achievers have an attitude like oh i'm spending too much time helping this this other student like this is compromising my learning do do you get that and if so how do you deal with it for sure, initially there's pushback. Like when you when you start it off in year seven, when you think they're ready to start doing this sort of thing, because you can't. Like I would first of all, before I start doing this, I'd be training them up in just how to use mini whiteboards and how to how to listen and like remain engaged and stuff. So you can't just throw it all at them all at once. But I think you say right from the beginning, you make you make the the act of helping an incredibly high challenge in itself. I mean, you like we all know as teachers to try and teach someone something is phenomenally difficult. And you have to communicate to the students that it is a skill, an art form to be able to help their partner. And I'm so what I'm actually trying to do is I'm trying to train up my students um in the Lamov style questioning when they're helping each other's helping each other in their groups. Um, obviously, I don't call it cold calling and right is right and, and stretch it, but I'm basically listening out for when they're helping their partners, are they telling their partners or are they questioning their partners and letting their partners do the thinking? And if they're telling their partners, then I'll stop the class and be like, guys, I'm listening to this conversation over here and this, this person over here, they're trying so hard to help their partner, but ultimately they're doing this and I, I model what they've done. I say, what's wrong with that? And this seems like they're, they're telling them and I'm saying, what's wrong with that? They've been really helpful. They're telling them a really good method. Their explanation was perfect. They used the chant and everything. And, and the students go, yeah, but they don't, no, what I want the students to say is that they say that they don't know their partners understood. And that's that's the key thing to it. You want them to be questioning each other and you want 
and, and once they realize that's what's expected and once they realize how difficult that is and you can see keep saying it honestly guys this is my whole job and I, it's really difficult and I, i'm i'm not even happy with where i am and i'm asking you to do the same thing it's really difficult and and if you can start asking the most perfect questions that are going to help your partner understand and if you can make up similar questions to what your partner got wrong to test their understanding then i can't think of anything more difficult and this is what i tell them but it's honestly also the truth like it is the truth it's so hard and so it's the perfect natural differentiator at its best because the highest attainers get the most challenging task of all which is to question and guide and retest uh, and basically do 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 my job and do do a teacher's job and not those that need the support they get the targets the support that they need and there's absolute pinnacle there's 15 different conversations 15 different mini math lessons going on each of which is specifically targeted to what those students need to be talking about and you can never ever achieve that if you're just doing direct instruction from the front of the classroom obviously i sounds lovely but it's really hard to facilitate effectively it requires like you have to be very confident in the classroom in terms of behavioral management in terms of i, I said before that you want to pat you want to pair up the highest attainer with the lowest attainer and and so on and so forth but obviously within the dynamics in the room means sometimes it's just not possible you can't certain kids are going to be really good friends certain kids are going to be enemies you know like the safeguarding reasons going on like you don't you, there's so many things to take into consideration and, and talking about what happened what you do, ideally do in theory is is often very different in practice and you've got to compromise all over the place but the it is it is for sure an attainable thing and at its best is like it's, it's a wonder to behold that's awesome i love that like playing on the desire for those high achievers to be challenged the natural desire because often the ones who do the best are the ones who are always looking for that challenge and just really playing up that probably the most challenging job in the classroom is actually helping someone else to understand um, makes so much sense to me do, do you have any students who are like yeah that's a challenge but it's not a maths challenge like i want to be doing harder questions um do you have any students who are of that of that view so something very rarely and i don't know whether this is just like my pantomime persona as a teacher means that that's that that's less likely to come about for sure there are moments when students go even if they don't vocalize it they, they there's kind of like oh i know how to do this i want to do something a bit different that that, 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 that must happen and it, it does happen. And I think in those circumstances, if, you, if you're getting a sense from that, either it's a quiet word outside to remind them of like how difficult it is and why it's a challenge and why it's a math challenge, because it is a math challenge, ultimately, even if it's through a class of a social constructive group work. Or you just say, like, maybe now's not the time. If they're not on board with it, then and then there's a sort of enough of them that are feeling that way, then maybe just ease it for a while. It's, it's the teacher's judgment. And you've got to question what's underlying that is it the fact that maybe sometimes sometimes students aren't very good at working with each other i'm like i'd be lying if i said that every student was questioning really well and every student was really receptive to the feedback every time it's not the case and so sometimes it's a clash of personalities sometimes there's a student that's just like not bought into the error culture and and they're feeling embarrassed about it and then it's on the teacher's job to reinforce all those cultural values all those cultural values that we've talked about already and just say there's nothing wrong with not knowing how to do something or just you need to remember that it's not your partner's fault that they don't understand something. And if at the end of this lesson, you're able, they're able to answer this question, that's you. And you've done that. It's the most, and it's a phenomenal achievement. And you, 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 you turn it all about the activity and why it's worthy of praise and why it's worthy of, of doing. But yeah, as you say, like sometimes it's not, not a go. Sometimes you, you have to, you have to call it as you see it. And, and that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult as well to, to manage effectively. So yeah, to answer the question. Yeah, kind of. Did, did, so does that mean that what would happen if when you say yeah, sometimes you have to call it and it's like you just let the higher achiever 
achieving student just do some questions and then what you personally work with the other student or, or what does that look like no so i'm i'm speaking quite theoretically because honestly i can't remember last time a student said i don't want to do this to okay. me okay um so in terms of call it i would never i don't think i would ever give the student one higher t- I, if i for sure if one student doesn't want to do it because they're not in the mood, I wouldn't let them have their own way. In the same way as like anything, if one student doesn't want to sit down at their desk and get on the work, I'm not going to let them do that. It's, it's the teacher's classroom and it's the teacher's call as to what they're doing. And they have to like they have to get on board with your your way of doing things. It's not to say you shouldn't be open to hearing feedback from them. Um, and maybe like it's worth a conversation outside lesson time. So if that did happen, I, calling it is the wrong, it's probably given the wrong impression. They would, I would still make them do it for a time until I said the whole class is going to stop doing this and we're going to do something different we're going to do it a bit differently and i wouldn't let that student do what they wanted calling it would probably just involve ending the group work earlier and talking to that student outside of the lesson got it got it how, how often do you actually change the partnerships throughout the year <laughs> so that's a, i've actually thought about this quite a lot I don't, I, I don't know what the best thing to do is because on the one hand so all of my classes this year have pretty much been sat in the same places for most of the year every so often I realize that a group is off task and I might just like maybe it's a bit knee-jerk but like the expectations are so high that they're not ever talking about anything other than the work that I was like you are never sitting there again you're sitting over here and that's that's final and like it, it sounds quite extreme but communicating those expectations to students means that the chances of them going off topic are very low but I think so I've kept most of my classes all together all year. And the benefit of that is they really get to know each other. They get to know each other, how each other's minds work. They get to know each other's strengths and weaknesses. They can recall a month ago, you had trouble like factorizing a quadratic expression. So it's not a surprise that when we're doing solving quadratic equations with shapes, you're going to find this difficult. And I know exactly I can predict it. And it's best. That's amazing because you've established a relationship and you can preempt misconceptions and, and what have you. And so particularly for the highest attainers doing that sort of thing, they will be doing that naturally. But the other side to it is it can get stale, I guess. Like they're, they're, and, I, and I think there's a few of my students that I reckon have probably, it's been one-way traffic for quite a lot of the year. Like There's been, there's been a very clear dynamic. I've engineered it that way because I think it's the most effective way. And a lot of the results have been really like really, really pleasing. Some of the some of the students at the beginning of the year who were really near the bottom of the class in terms of their assessments have come out with really good results. And I've seen what's been happening all year and, and the the person they've been sat next to, their partner's done an amazing work. But I think there is sometimes an element of fatigue that can get get there. And I think I'm definitely gonna change it up next year, having done it having kept to it fairly rigidly this year. I think the seating plan is really important and if it's not working for whatever reason, change it up. But if it is working, then keep it. Again, that's the teacher's judgment. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's great advice. Finally, on this thing of like the high achievers, maybe, you know, the one-way traffic or not wanting to be held back or tiring or whatever it might be. So with that, a question I've had is actually also parents, right? The parents of those high-achieving higher achieving students being like, why is my son or daughter spending 50% of their classes teaching another student? That's not their job. That's your job as the teacher. Your job is to make sure every student in this classroom is stretched, and my student isn't, my child isn't being stretched. Do do you get that? And if so, how do you deal with that? I talk, put simply, no, I haven't been challenged like that, but probably because I've done various things to preempt that from from happening. First of all, communicating to the students how worthwhile it is, how important it is, how useful it is, and how great it is. Um, and secondly, when I'm talking to the like often my recognition or like, let's say an end of year prize, mass prize or something is goes to the person who's like done the best questioning of their partner. And, is, and I've seen amazing progress in their partner and it's thanks to them. 
And telling, so communicating these things to parents in your weekly recognition or a phone call home. And you explain to parents, we do a lot of group work. And I, I, the reason I do it is because not only do I think it's a really good way of learning, but I think it challenges your son or daughter. Um, I think that they, the way they're able to question, honestly, I could, I wish I could have teachers come and watch how they do it. Their, their skill is that incredible. Um, and it's unbelievably difficult. And, and if I didn't believe that, then I wouldn't think there was much worth to my job. Because what I'm asking them to do is basically do what I do. Um, I wouldn't do my job if I didn't think it was worthwhile. So I, I like those little things go which you put in place um, mean that I think I have the support of parents and like almost always the support of the students. I also think there'll be times where I go a week without doing group work. Um, not in all my classes, they'll always come up. But one class, just might, there might be a period of time where the group is not relevant. It's not, it's not there. It's not, it's not, there's, not, there's no reason for it. We don't need to teach each other. We haven't done a test. It's not one of those moments where some of the knowledge is in the room, but others don't have it and they need time to teach each other and process. It just might be the case that direct instruction is the best thing for it at that point. Like we talked about, sometimes a topic needs a certain approach. Um, and so, whereas other times, like we've been reviewing end of year assessments, there's been loads of group work. And uh, maybe at that point, uh, maybe if, if, it kept, if we kept doing this for the next week, then students might tire a bit of it. But I think balance is really important. And again, the teacher's judgment in their class, in their context, um, is the best way of identifying whether or not it's the right thing to do. Even if the principal is the right time for it, like we're reviewing a test, it might be that the teacher says, we've done a lot of that recently. I think I, we, need to, we need to do it in a slightly different way. Um, and so 50% is definitely, uh, you, I know you just throwing 50% out there just because like, let's say X percentage is too much um, for some people, but it's not I don't think it's it's very rare that it's enough of a it's a substantial enough part of a lesson that students are getting tired of it. Um, I think it's one component within a lesson which is unbelievably helpful in particular situations, and and those situations come up fairly regularly, but not always. Mm, got it. No, that's helpful. Um, I'm keen to get into the the kind of nitty gritty of the of the student accountability here. Um, the the partner accountability. How do you actually hold students account? for their partner's learning. This is the key to it all. And I think this is why t students don't get bored of it. And it's why students don't see it as a, as a burden because ultimately they know that whatever their partner does or doesn't do, that's on them. And uh, first of all, you have to communicate. Just simply say that to them. We're going to talk in groups now. I'm going to pick the person that I think is least likely to know based on what I'm hearing from your conversations or based on their mini whiteboards or, what, or based on their test result that you're reviewing right now. I'm going to pick the people that I think are least likely to know with the data I have. And when they answer, if they can't do it, I'm blaming you. But equally, guys, if they get it right, you've done a phenomenal job and I'm very proud of you because obviously like, they've, they, you have taught them that. Um, and so communicating your expectations, first of all, is really important. I remember that it was, it was the most beautiful. When I, you know, I said when I turned up at TTA, I, I, I learned so much from my colleagues really quickly. When it goes back to that comment, right? So I, I did used to review tests by basically modeling how to do each question and then giving the students some work solutions and then saying, right, let's move on. And then one of my colleagues said, how do, how do you know they've learned? How do you know they've understood it all learned from their mistakes? And uh, I think I tried to argue it for a bit. <laughs> they were like, mm. and then eventually I was like, no, they're, 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 I don't know that. And they said, what, what, we, what I do, my colleagues said, what I do is I take photos of questions they got wrong. So like maybe five photos of different students' questions they got wrong from the test. And I say to them, what we're going to do now, guys, 
in our groups on the day that I'm giving them back the test is you're going to fix up your mistakes for questions one to 10. Question 11, most of you got wrong. I'm going to show you how to do that because like, there's not enough of you that know how to do it. It's not a good use of time. When you talk about in your groups after I've gone through 11, you've got to also check they understand number 11. At the end of the lesson, I'm going to project five people's mistakes. I've taken photos of your work. I'm going to project one person's mistake and the next person's mistake and the next person's mistake. When that person's mistake comes up, they need to be able to explain to me how to do it. If they can't, it is I'm going to look at their partners and I'm going to see which of their partners got this question right in the test. And I'm going to immediately know they're the people that have failed. And the, the I remember like he so he told me this method, and I was like, it was mind blown. It's just so the accountability is just off the scale. And when and when you call and he said, and I said, what if they can't do it? What like what if when you called and they can't do it? How do you put that on the partner? And he said, first of all, he said, first of all, I'll make a big like sort of pantomime show. Like you've had a whole lesson to do this, and this is what they're coming up with. It's nonsense. They don't have any. And the, and the kid who's got it wrong is just sat there like, oh man. But the rest of the, the rest of the table are like, oh my god. I knew how to do this at the beginning of the lesson. I spent all lesson trying to do this and I'm just getting told off. And God, I, I, this is this is like, it, it's like a paradigm shift in their thinking. And they start to, and, and, and they realize it doesn't matter what, what they know. It's all about what their partner knows. And the teacher's going to check. And you say, and then they can't do it. You say, right, you guys are going to have to stay behind and you're going to have to actually get this, get this person to know what's going on. And then you're not going to leave until they can do it. And uh, that's how you like put the accountability measures in place on a sort of practical level, which means that they end up doing what you want. But then, even just when, when like, let's say you do mini whiteboards to check for understanding, and it's one of those moments where half the room has got it right, half the room hasn't. You could you could just model it again, but half the room are bored at that point because they know how to do it. You could give them another question, but that might that won't might not address misconceptions. And if it's evenly spread, probably the best thing to do is to get them to do group work. But when before you uh, get them to show their board, after they've shown their boards, and uh, before you get them to start talking, make a quick mental note of a couple of students that got it wrong. And you try and remember their mistake. And you know you know to yourself, you say to them, I'm gonna let you talk about it now, guys, and then I'm gonna pick people who got it wrong. And so when they talk, they talk and if they think they're finished, if they know for a fact that their whole table is ready, they put up their hand. And if they don't put up their hand, they don't say they're ready, then fair enough, like you can't get too annoyed at them for if they if they can't do it in the end. But sometimes you see them finishing talk, they're they're sat in silence, and so you stop the class. You say, I'm going to stop everyone now, guys, because this table over here is finished. I know that Alex over here, he got this question wrong. So, Alex, start talking. And like sometimes you can lay traps like that. And you, it, like, if you know they're doing a bad job and they're, they're not going to be able to answer it, you ask, make Alex explain it. Alex gets it wrong. You go and then you make it like a you ignore Alex. Alex just gets left to one side and you put it all on that table. You go, guys, like, what were you just doing right now? What did you think you were supposed to be doing? Because right, I've asked him. He didn't know what was going on three minutes ago. He's maybe even less sure now. And poor Alex is sat there like, Alex sat there like, oh, wow. Maybe, and maybe he's thinking I should really listen a bit more. Or, or maybe he's thinking when my partners are helping me, I really need to make sure I don't get them in trouble by like, I need to really try hard to listen. But you basically, the teacher ignores Alex and puts it on the group and says to the group, this is not good enough. You've got the knowledge. You've got to share it. Mm. That's, 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 that's pretty phenomenal. Um, with, with the test feedback, do you, do you give the like numerical answers to the questions, um, so that students know who was right and who wasn't right? Or do you just leave it to them to discuss each question in turn and agree on the answer or not? Yeah. So obviously we mark it, ticks and crosses. As a department, we don't really write comments ever in books or on tests because Again, how do you know the students have understood it? How do you know they've read it? How do you know they can read your writing? 
it's just not, I don't think it's, we've agreed it's not a very productive use of time to mark books. So we don't bet. So you will actually hand them back the marked version. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Got ticks, it, got crosses, got ticks and crosses, hand the papers out. You say to them, you start at the beginning, you check everyone on the table. If you all got question one correct, you move on to the next one. If you all got question two correct, move on to the next one. But if one of you got question three wrong, your priority at that point is to fix that person's number three. And so you've got to ask them questions, check their purple pen notes, because they're going to have to write something down in purple pen to explain the strategy. And if they can't write it down in purple pen, no, in, in purple pen, then you obviously haven't done a good enough job yet. And you've got to go back to drawing board and figure out a different way of explaining it or asking them questions. And I say, to, like, and you say, if you can't ask the right question, if you can't guide them through just through questioning, because like, often that is really difficult to do, particularly if it's a very fundamental idea that they maybe just need to hear, then you can explain it to them. But what are you not ever allowed to say, guys, at the end? Do you understand? Because if you say, do you understand, that part of your partners is a nod. Everyone does it. Everyone does it all the time. I do it in normal life. Someone says, do you understand? The natural thing is to say yes. And the partner might even think they understand. But unless you check, you can't know. So if you ever ask your partner, if you have to resort to explaining something, you're not allowed to say, do you understand? If you do happen to say, do you understand by accident, you have to follow it up with a, a similar question to test them. And so that, that if, they're, if, it, if they're resorting to explaining, they have to come up with a different question that's, that's a, a similar concept. And that, again, is really challenging. And then, like I said before, that the, the high attainers have to, have to ask the right questions. But coming up with a question that tests the same misconception is like an art form, as, as, like, as, as you know, to, to come up with a really good question. Like that, I think asking the right questions in terms of explanation, thinking about the crux of the learning objective, and coming up with the best examples possible to draw out misconceptions, that's, those are the key things to lesson planning. I think that's what all the lesson planning time should be spent doing. But the students have got to do that. And uh, that's perfect. Like it, It's an extension task, which never ends. Sometimes students finish review. Let's say two, two students got like between them two questions wrong in a test, but other people in the class got 10 wrong. The guys who got 10 wrong are going to spend a lot of time talking about their mistakes, asking questions, checking purple notes, doing what I've asked them to do. But the guys who got it all right, they're going to run out of stuff to do pretty quickly. So they, they need to, first of all, keep testing each other in terms of the explanation of the questions they got wrong. And then they start to make up their own questions to really, and like maybe even make even harder versions of the questions to test each other. And you give them mini whiteboards and let them just like draw out the questions and stuff and test them. And yeah, like I, I think it's, it's a really nice feature of it. Mm. Do you do, um? so I, I tried this, this very similar thing in terms of partner accountability with my with one of my classes at the end of last term and I've been doing it a little bit this term and the way I the way I set it up was I put them in partnerships and then I told them you know there's there's two quizzes for us to do like here's the content for today give a bit of intro to it um this is what you need to know but also at the end of today's lesson or within today's lesson when you and your partner understand this new content and when you feel confident about the content from the past say five lessons i want you to come to me and ask for a quiz and i'll give you the quiz you do it and then you know i'll mark it just here in the lesson and then if you get it wrong if you get it right you get points for your team and i split the class into teams and if you get it wrong i'll actually give you some more time to work on it and then i'll give you a second quiz and so each lesson had kind of two two quizzes and so this was like a punctuated time for them to test their understanding and it gave me an opportunity to say well you, you both told me that you were 
you're ready for this quiz, but you know, you've got three out of 10 wrong. So like what's happened there? Probably not. It's really nice. Yeah. No, it's really nice. Yeah. Probably not home to, to account with the uh, same intensity that you do. I must admit, Sammy, but uh, that's, <laughs> I guess that's something for me to work on. Um, and so we actually did that like two quizzes every lesson or one or two quizzes every lesson. Some of the students absolutely loved it. And I had one student, I got them to write a reflection. He said, you know, uh, this is the first time in six years, I feel like I've been learning. I've actually enjoyed maths and other students hated it. And they said, you know, I haven't, haven't learned anything, you know, this has just helped me back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so the reason why I share that is because I'm curious, what opportunities do you give students to, I mean, you're obviously giving them constant opportunities to check their understanding, but in terms of like punctuated times like that, like a quiz that you give them or something, how often, how often does that happen and how often do you think that needs to happen for them to have like an objectively teacher-written set of questions that they can then go, oh, yeah, we actually, as a partnership, we really do have this down? So. I guess after any time you give a question, let's say a mini whiteboard question, um, the teacher has to say whether it's right or wrong before the students talk about it. Otherwise, they're going to be going around in circles talking about nonsense. And in theory, any time that the teacher gives a question, which they then indicate the answer to, however that may be, be it through marking a test or um, just giving them a silent mini whiteboard test and then teacher telling them and, and figuring out what they know from that, there's the opportunity to do that. In terms of like how often we test them, the idea is we do it every at the end of every topic, which works out about once every two weeks. In terms of like a little topic test that's maybe got ten to 15, ten to twenty questions, the review system works usually with group work unless there's not knowledge in the in the room. In which case, I will do a lot of modelling, but I'll raise accountability in terms of listening by periodically just picking up per people's tests and being like, what have you written down in Purple Pen for this question? Explain how to, how to do this question where I've just rubbed out the numbers and put new ones in. But then I'll also say we're going to do a re. I'll say before the review, we'll do a retest where I'm going to rub out all the numbers on this test and give you the same questions with different numbers. And if you don't get eighty percent, then you're going to have to stay behind at lunch or whatever. Um, so like that, that's how often that happens. Like the independent practice aspect of every two lessons, like those are teacher made questions. Which if there's if if one or two questions have proved particularly spicy and the students haven't done very well on them, then once you've given them the answer, you can give them the time to talk about it. And, and that does happen. The independent practice obviously happens every, at least every two lessons and often more often. Does that answer the question? Yeah. I'm yep. not sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so just to summarize, how often are they given like a quiz or something that they find out how they win? Their score to. Yeah. Yeah. Every two weeks, roughly. But if we do fluency test, sorry, I, I was a bit confused about what we meant by quiz. Um, if they do fluency tests, that would be probably a weekly thing. Most of the department does fluency tests for most of their classes, at least once a week, maybe every two weeks. But that, as I said to you, like my choice with that to, to manage my workload is to do is let them market the what either peer market or self-assess it, but then I take it in and do the QLA so I can get the data and have a like understand where the class is coming from. It's subject to students making mistakes, um, but I think it's it, it generally gets most of the value from doing a, a test in test conditions in terms of giving the teacher data to react to, but without having to actually mark a like a set of thirty-five tests every week. So, yeah, but the topic tests are always marked by the teacher and they're roughly every two weeks. Mm, great. A uh, uh, kind of lean approach to that QLA that I used for a while was a similar thing. Like I would get, I would give students a quiz, then I would get them to self-mark or partner mark. And then I'd just say it has 10, quest 10 questions. I'd just write the numbers one to 10 up on the board. And then I'd just say, hands up if you got question one right. And I'd write a rough percentage on the board of next day, hands up if you've got question two right. And so, you know, within 30 seconds, you've got that 
rough question level analysis and you can quickly circle it and be like, all right, question three, only 30%, question seven, only 20%, you know, we're going to be doing some more work on these. So that's just another way to do a similar thing. Yeah, nice. The only, the only danger with that is um, if, if they're not honest. And I think um, I've said don't lie to yourself is a bit of a mantra in, in our classrooms, but I, I, my behavior system pretty much distills down to don't like liars or bullies. And so within that, there's a bit, you can, you can kind of attribute any kind of poor behavior um, within one of those two categories um, if you try hard enough. And I think like the, the lying thing, like that, if you don't understand something and I say, does anyone have any questions and you don't ask a question, then you're lying about it. Or, and I think constant, and anytime you say who agrees with, someone thinks this, who agrees with them? And one person puts their hand up. You say, I, you, that is so brave. There's 34 people in this room who disagree with you and you're still putting your hand up. I don't even care if you're right or wrong for now. I just want to respect that because it's too good because I know that you're being honest and it's the most important thing. And like every opportunity you get to praise honesty is so important because it helps the culture. And then things like what you just described when you're doing your kind of uh, live question level analysis on the board, if you know that the students are going to be honest or at least you never know, but if you've got a good indication they're going to be honest, then that, that facilitates moments like that which help you teach and save you time so yeah i I probably haven't talked enough about how much we reinforce honesty yeah no that's really good the error culture is really important i'm glad that came out and that's and i mean it's a process that could be supported by your kind of peer accountability approach you know if you said make sure your partner doesn't lie about whether they got the question right or not um that that could help or you could even do the just partners swap tests mark the other persons and did your partner get it right um so that might be another way to do it Cool. Now, one of the things that really struck stuck with me from Adam's interview with James Mannion when he was talking about the maths program at TTA was he said, you know, I really, I really admire the group work that they do. I don't do group work because I don't think I'm a skilled enough teacher, right? And that's how he kind of framed. He talked. He really talked about the skills that are required of a teacher to effectively do this group work. And it, I, I think it's definitely true that there are probably more moving parts in a classroom when you send 30 kids off to talk in pairs and if you've got them all facing the front and you're doing some explicit instruction kind of thing, right? There's a lot more to manage, there's a lot more to keep track of and things like that. In terms of the skills required to really do a good job of this, what do you think What do you think a student, a teacher has to have or be able to do to be able to run this kind of approach successfully? Straight away, we often talk about this as being like the cherry on the cake. And so with our training, we have a number of trainees in the maths department, and it's definitely not something that I would ever want them to be thinking about in the first, I don't know, like it obviously depends on their own development, but within the first X months of, of beginning, because the most important thing is they have to have control of behavior. Uh, behavior for learning has to be really sorted because as you say, there's so many moving parts. You have to avoid getting sucked into individual conversations. And sometimes it's even a matter of you like physically having your back turned to certain students because you've been sucked in, you want to help certain groups. It's very difficult. And as soon as your back's turned, you've got no idea what's going on in that in half the classroom or more. So part of it is like you have to be skilled, like well not I guess it is a skill, but confident enough and also secure enough in your belief in how well you've taught them up to that point for you to trust the fact that they're not going to give up when they don't understand immediately and move yourself physically back towards the corner of the classroom so you can listen and watch the whole class and you kind of got to zone into different conversations that are happening across the classroom and that is a really difficult skill to do and if you're not if you're second if, if it's not second nature to you to like be thinking about looking at the whole class at the same time in those moments then it's going to go quite wrong i think because they'll start messing around they'll start talking off topic and you won't even know about it so behavior for learning for sure is the like fundamental 
the students have to be really well trained and that requires the teacher to have put in a lot of time and effort into communicating their expectations for group work. So the teacher has to be clear in their own head about what, when they're asking the students to do group work, how, like how they're going to do it and how they're going to hold the students to account. And they have to be able to communicate that to the students. And then they actually have to do what they've said they're going to do. So behavior for learning and then having a clear rationale about when and why to do the group work and then being able to actually like follow through with that. And like the students need to have, there seems to be certain, always there needs to be a certain amount of knowledge in the room. And some of that is dependent on there being an already good culture in the classroom where students have had success in the past and have a basic bank of prerequisite knowledge to be able to attack things that aren't teacher led. Mm. Yep. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. I think kind of stepping back and having that perspective on the classroom that you were talking about in the first part of your answer there, I think that is something that it takes a long time or it can take a long time, especially without sufficient support for teachers to develop because it is so tempting to identify a problem and then just like go straight to it. And a kind of analogy is, you know, you watch, you watch students play in the, in the UK, you call it football and the, the little kids when they're new, they're just all following the ball around the pitch right? <laughs> because that's all they can see. It's just like literally what's in front of them and they just become focused on it and they lose all perspective. And that's what it's like for often for new teachers. They like see a ball and they just like go to it and they're just, and it's just like chaos is going on around them and they're actually <laughs> oblivious to it. So it just takes that constant reinforcement. It's like step back, survey the field, get a sense for how things are moving at a macro scale. Then you can come in and do targeted things for short periods of time whilst also keeping that kind of big picture in your, in your head at the same time is, is very yeah, challenging. I'll, I'll be honest, I, I, I did group work earlier this week and I, I got sucked in. And I actually said to midway through, a student, some students asked me to help them with something because it was quite difficult why I'd asked them to talk about. And so, yeah, it was one of the processing moments. Um, rather than a teaching each other moment um so i'm care i'm cautious about like if they get stuck or they get they're reinforcing misconceptions that's dangerous um and it was one of my sort of lowest attaining groups so anyway i'm aware that i've got to keep the whole class in view and so i i, I don't go don't get sucked in and start turning my back but i did get sucked in and when i was questioning some of them it transpired that one of them did have a pretty decent idea and i was like at this point i was like whoa 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 what am i doing he knows he knows he's got a good idea what am I doing his job for? Why am I doing your job? And I'd allowed myself to do that without checking, first of all, what they knew. And so, and or like checking if actually any of them did understand. And so like, I've been doing group work for what, four years now. And uh, I still get sucked in. It's, uh, you know, it's this, you know, this idea of Kaizen, which I've mentioned about continuous improvement comes in hand in hand with the phrase, we never arrive. And I'm still like, I, I know that I'm so far from the finished article and I still go and watch Thanos teach. And I think, my God, like, <laughs> he's, still, he's still operating on a different level. Um, it's still a different sport. But yeah, like, that's just a classic example. I know everyone still make mistakes. Um, but don't let mistake. I think what's really important as well, and this is the same for all teaching practice, and I'm sure it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, because never assume. And uh, just, you have to reflect you have to be your own biggest critic and like, even if it's recording yourself in the classroom like i'm going to try doing group work now and i'm going to and i'm going to plan for it and i'm going to set it up and i know why i'm doing it and i know there's knowledge in the room because i've marked these tests and i'm going to record myself doing it telling the students the expectations and seeing how i follow through with that and i'm going to watch it back even though it's really painful and i hate the way that i sound on video because that all that experience is going to enable me to get better if i'm really reflective and so you've got to be your own biggest critic and constantly be trying to improve by reflecting on what you've done and, and like if something hasn't gone right don't not do it again just ask why 
and figure it out. So I think that's also something a teacher has to be willing to do is to go through, take the rough with the smooth and, and just if something doesn't happen, mistakes, learn from them. And uh, <laughs> we'll go back to that again. Love that. Love that. So uh, something you've mentioned a couple of times today is, is the idea of check for understanding. Could you talk us through a couple of ways that you do that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so questioning we use, those are the more strategies we use to gauge students' understanding. Like, so when we cold call, if it's to check for prerequisite knowledge or to check for something that I'm expecting the whole class to understand, I've got certain students that are labelled on my seating plan. I know them in my head, but just as a school policy, we have them labelled on our seating plan um, that are my lowest attainers, and they're the ones that I cold call because I'm not going to lie to myself when I'm doing my cold calling and just pick the ones that I know know the answer because the lesson's not going to work and they're not going to learn if I'm not picking the ones that are least likely to know. So that's used as a kind of gauge for the class, but it's you never, ever should do questioning to gauge or to check for understanding when whole class of data is available. So like questioning is not a great gauge because you're just picking one student and like to use that as the as a gauge for 35 other students like when you say it out loud it sounds mental but obviously there's a lot that goes into it and, and you are picking the ones that least like to know so the chances are it's all right but it's nowhere near as good as getting data from the whole class for example through mini whiteboards so if a, if it can be done on a mini whiteboard then it probably should be done on a mini whiteboard and when i say like mini whiteboards i mean every student's got their own little whiteboard they hold their white i give them a question to test how much they've understood of what's been going on they hold the mini whiteboard close to them like in their arm so that not on the table so their partner can't see and it's literally like a test conditions and absolute silence and you're checking all the time and if someone's if a student's got it on the desk, you go, I can see your board from here. And I'm at the front of the classroom or the back. Pick it up, pick it up. And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. And they pick it up. And then when they're finished with their working, they hover their board so that you know that they're ready. And then when the whole class has done that, then you show me and you have to really carefully read every student's response. There's no point doing a cursory glance around the room being like, yeah, kind, yeah, 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 mostly good. You need to like really look and see who's got it right and who's got it wrong. And sometimes if anyone's got it wrong, you maybe want to pick their board up and show the class what's gone wrong here, guys. Or you may be like, if enough of them have gone wrong, you say, you, 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 and you has got this wrong. Everyone else got it right. Talk in your groups about what you've done and why. And if your partner got it wrong, help them out now. And I'm going to pick someone who got it wrong or whatever it may be. But the, the checking for understanding is you can't teach without checking for understanding. It's not teaching. I kind of maybe didn't understand this for a long time in my career, but talking and explaining something beautifully, modeling, is only half of the, the act of teaching. Because the other half is checking if they understood what you've done beautifully. And if they haven't, or if they have, reacting and allowing your lesson to take the appropriate course based on that data. And if you're not thinking about that, then it's complete chance whether or not your lesson goes well and whether or not they've understood what you're saying. Mm. No, really good point. And when I interviewed Tom Sherrington, I said, you know, what's the most important thing in terms of Rosenshine's principles and, and just instruction more generally? He was like, yep, check for understanding. That's the number one thing. And I yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, Probably, probably the last thing I say that tentatively, but probably the last thing I want to ask you about in terms of the way you run things at TTA is is you alluded to this idea of knowledge organisers as something you're bringing in, and also you talked about supporting students to prepare for exams, like teaching them how to study before exams. So I wanted to um to, to turn to that a little bit now. So tell us a bit about, about the organisers, about how you um, prepare students for exams and teach them how to study and how these two things kind of fit together. Yeah, so there's a chance the best way of revising maths is to do maths. 
in t- from a maths perspective. That's not to say, so I'm sure you, like most people who study maths or teach maths, know that you have to do lots of questions. You have to do lots of independent practice. You have to, when you don't get something right, you have to figure out what's gone wrong. You have to start, like, figure that out. And communicating that to students about the process of when you get something wrong, don't just go, okay, I got it wrong. Stop. Ask yourself what went wrong. What was your mistake? How did you do it? Explain it in your own words using purple pen. And if you're still struggling, then seeking help. And then when you've done that, going back to it later on to see if you actually do understand it by testing yourself again. And then if you do get it right, testing yourself on it, the same thing, the same question three days later, and then a week later, like that, we communicate that to students about this is the process of revision. This is what it means to 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 revise effectively. Um, I'll be honest, like I, I don't think I don't think it's something that personally I'm I, like I, the students are. It's one of the things I think the students are furthest away from where I want them to be. Um, and I think actually like a lot of the things that I've talked about, I think are they end up be they have been we are we, we do do quite successfully. Um, but this is my dream for how my students revise and I'm, I'm communicating to my A-level students at the moment um, like this this is it's really important for them when they're doing these difficult papers that they like explain in words how to do something the method even if it's verbally to a friend but then they retest themselves when they don't understand because it's all about retest 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 to test themselves that's the only day that they've got to have their own data they've got to know because they can't just say yeah I understand that one but that's a temptation but even with them even with my year 12s they don't do it enough like, so one of my students failed his retest today on his from his mock his end of year mock um and he said I I I, could, I explained it to someone so and so in in the class really well and I'm really surprised I just got into the exam I didn't know what to do like did you test yourself when you got home he went no and I, even though I've said it so many times he's still not they're still not getting the message enough and when you, when you break it down to key stage three and four, like so kids age 11 to 16, even less so. Um, but it's just reinforcing the message, um, modeling it. Um, we, we set them up for, we, we tend to do a lot of computer work for homework. But when it comes to exams, we try to give them exam style questions in paper packs to sort of differentiate that. And also a lot of homework is fluency style practice. It's not like problem solving. It's just reinforcing, consolidating things that they've learned in lessons. But the the exam the, the revision packs that we give them try to have in the UK like we sometimes call them AO two AO three style questions which like were an old style exam question which had more problem solving it was like showing you a problem in a slightly novel way and the students have to use sort of problem solving skills to to figure out so we try to give them more of that in preparation for exams for home learning and um, for revision but then always like we they we try and communicate to them they have to mark it and i i it's a difficult one some students in the department don't trust the students to mark their own work i'm trying like i with all the talk about honesty and stuff and the like, the, the phrase don't lie to yourself and constantly remind the students what these exams are for like, if you lie when you're revising and you just copy the answer in the back of the book like, it's very, very clear when when you do the exam and you're only making your own life worse and you say all these things to them and i think I, I, maybe naively i think that most of my students don't cheat some probably do and when i do notice it and sometimes if i think if i've got suspicion they tested they've cheated i obviously like i i make them explain it right in front of me in the lesson and if they can't then i send them out and i'll call their parent there and there and be like this is what's happened and get them to admit it and all these things like again the accountability measures but yeah bringing the work in after they've marked it to then talk about in their groups and fix up mistakes that or things they didn't understand that's part of the process in preparation for 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 like the end of year assessments or the mid-year assessments the big ones that's so to speak um that we use as a better gauge for learning than obviously the topic tests 
So that's what we do. The knowledge organizers are a, are a new thing, which we haven't, we only launched in December. We spent a long time in the last year making them as staff. Question is like a separate point. Should staff make revision materials for students or is that actually reducing their ability to learn independently long term in life? It's a separate question that I think is worth discussing at some point. Um, but anyway, we, we are making these resources for the students to help their revision. Um, we launched in December, the first one, but then we went into a two month, two and a half month lockdown in the UK. And so those exams that ended up happening at the end of like three months after we launched the knowledge organizer and it wasn't used properly. So we haven't actually had the chance to really embed the use of knowledge organizers in our revision and in our day-to-day practice. What we will do, so the way it's set up is one column is the teacher chant, the second column is the student reply, the third column is the example, but it's incomplete. So the idea is you can, you know, the read, cover, test, check for revision. I actually question whether that makes sense in terms of if you read before you test and you're you're giving yourself the answer before you test yourself. So I don't know, maybe it should be test, check, um, reread or something. But anyway, cover so they cover the color the, the the student response column and they can test themselves on the chance like that. And it's kind of designed physically on the sheet on the paper, the layout of the paper to for the, for that testing self testing to happen. And when we do embed the knowledge organizers into revision and into the, the curriculum, that will come with an explanation as to how to use it and how to test themselves. So that's where we are on that. That's good. And then, and then, you know, I think a lot of people kind of resonate with the idea that maybe students aren't at the point of, of that independent study and that independent preparation and, you know, really reliably checking themselves over and over again. I know for, for myself, that's something that I'm, constantly trying to work out better ways to support my students to do and really it's one of the key things that separates the really high achievers from the students who, who struggle like if they just if they're rigorous on themselves if they hold themselves to account on every single success criteria and every time they come across a question they don't understand they like interrogate it and they you know they learn from it they make notes from it they d- develop some system to look at it again before before you know just before the exam or something like that or something like that um yeah, it's 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 absolutely crucial, and I know that um there's so there must be many people out there who who want to get better at that as well. It's a really interesting. So I, I having I mentioned before that I went to like a private school when I was a kid, and there's there's various things that make that separate private schools from like just normal schools like like where I work now. And I think one of them is cultural capital. There's just an ingrained cultural capital that students like gain just from being in the school. They like learn things that are around the curriculum without ever really trying to, and they just have a. And uh, they, they develop a deeper understanding of how society works. And, and but one thing that's really interesting is private schools often have like, fantastic behavior. I remember at my school, it wasn't always the case, but most like students want to do well. Their parents want them to do well. They pay for the fees. Um, it would be silly not to try. And so because there's an, a sort of almost sure thing that the behavior is going to be good, Teachers don't need to think so carefully necessarily. I'm not saying like not not all teachers, and it's not. There's a lot of private schools that do amazing work and stuff. Um, and I definitely had some brilliant teachers when I was at school. But there's not the same need to to do to put measures into place to hold students to account or to think about the best way of explaining something because ultimately the students are going to go away and they're gonna they are independent and they they know that the reason they're doing it is because they want to do well and come what may they're going to figure out a way of learning this content regardless of what their teacher's doing and because of that that that's the secret to like really good 
exam results at schools where at private schools where the teaching isn't necessarily being thought about in the same level of detail as, as it is like, as like how we're talking about it now the students do so well because they want to do well because they're independent and because that's just they've that is the ultimate like success of education if you can if somehow your students become independently motivated to get stuff done and learn and revise and it's the hardest thing because it requires cultural capital and it requires so many external factors that you can't control outside your classroom um and i think like that, that it's the ultimate goal really isn't it it doesn't matter culturally strategy for breakfast and if you can if the culture in your classes you've got 35 independently motivated students who teach themselves then like that that's it you've succeeded because it's not just in your lessons it's not just in your subject but long term in life they're going to be independent they're going to know how to get things done and if they can't get things done they're going to learn and Definitely, definitely. I, arguably, a lot of the things that we do at our school do the opposite thing. Maybe they make kids more reliant. And this is what I'm talking about, the knowledge organisers. Maybe us creating these amazing, like honestly, I think amazing resources that are so beautifully engineered to match up with how we teach. Maybe students never learn how what it means to have to figure things out for themselves and become reliant. And then when we're not there anymore, when they leave school, when they've gone to university, when they get jobs or whatever, they end up drowning because they, they've They've never had to figure it out. So yeah, it's just a you know, what a question, and and I definitely, definitely don't have a solution, and possibly I'm making the problem worse in my context. So who knows? Yeah, yeah, it's worth thinking about. It's a, it's a huge, it's a huge question, um, Sammy, and I, I really appreciate your honesty in in and your openness to reflecting in on the. Jung Zhao calls them side effects, um, the, the potential side effects of, you know, really, really highly scaffolded environments. I guess one thing that's encouraging is the extent to which people who are doing this excellent explicit instruction, excellent scaffolding and things like that are asking the big questions like, what impacts is this having on my students as learners? Because I think as soon as, if, if we forget to ask those questions, then we head down a very, very dangerous road. But if we can kind of keep those questions in mind as we are constantly developing our practice and refining things, then I have a lot of faith that, you know, as, as individual teachers, as schools, as departments, as, as a profession, we should be heading in the right direction. Yeah. Beauty. Um, let's move into some closing questions now. It's, I mean, it's almost been three hours and uh, you probably have to go to bed and I have to go to school. So <laughs> um, what advice would you give to your first year teacher self? Um, I think uh, don't take things personally. <laughs> things go wrong like not, and understand that there's, there's no substitute for experience. doesn't matter how much potential you have and how good you could end up being. Experience is probably the most important thing to give yourself even a chance. And uh, one of the most sad things I think about teaching is the context in which teachers learn to teach is so varied. There are so many of my friends that started teacher training with me and the context in their schools was so tough that they just after, either they binned it off within a year or they they lasted it out for the two years. So they qualified and then they went and did something else and they could have been phenomenal teachers, but they never understandably they didn't give themselves a chance to enjoy it and I think I, I did stick with it and I, I honestly I got eaten like you wouldn't I sometimes say people, when people trainees look in my classroom now and I wish they could see just the state of it in, in my first year it was it was ridiculous what was going on like the lack of control and the lack of learning taking place and I think just I so I did stick with it but so many people don't and I would as a message to to new teachers just at its best it is a fun not like it's just too good it's such a fun job it's it's there's nothing actually maybe playing football is like I, I don't think about anything apart from apart from teaching when I'm teaching it's it's, it's all encompassing and the day just flashes before you uh, like before your eyes and stick with it and give yourself the chance to see if in the right context it can be with it can be uh, good for you 
That's that's awesome advice. Three favorite edgy books, or three favorite books. So I, yeah, so all, all I'm gonna say three that pretty much define how we do things at my school. Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion. Couldn't I'm sure everyone knows about that. Uh, Rosenshine's Principles uh, in Action, which was written by Tom Sherrington, who you mentioned earlier. He's been on this podcast. But yeah, that's a good summary of Rosenstein's principles that we use, try and use in almost all our lessons. The last one, it's not so much an educational book, but it's about motivation. So, and and uh, it's the sort of basis on which my school does not do if then rewards and does do things like now that rewards. And it's Drive by Daniel Pink, um, which talks about mastery, autonomy, and purpose as the key components of motivation. What are you excited about at the moment? <laughs> going back to normal school next year i mean who knows what normal is going to be and who knows when covid's going to sort of be a bit of an afterthought but the idea is we're not going to have quadruple lessons to minimize um transitions around school which are because quadruple lessons are hard work and just being able to i think a lot of people have had to compromise on a lot of things in the last year and a half to do with their teaching me included and i can't wait to go back to normality of sorts and start to really get back into thinking about best practice and how to improve rather than just sort of crisis managing a little bit. Um, I'm also about to start, I'm taking on a joint head of department role this, uh, next year. So I'm, I'm going to be sharing the role. I don't actually have any responsibility at the moment um, beyond like mentoring and stuff. But anyway, that, that, that'll be exciting. A bit nervous about it because obviously it's going to be a lot more work. But yeah, I'm excited. And obviously summer holidays are coming. And uh, I think it's really important to say like, you can love your job. And for sure I do, um, particularly when it's going well. But I think, you know, you need to be loving your weekends and, and your holidays because if you're not, then you're doing them wrong, I think. And I don't make any apologies for saying I can't wait for term to be finished and having a great time in the summer. So, uh, yeah. Good on you, mate. And any last calls to action or things you'd like uh, listeners to go away today and do? I really think next time you review a test, if uh, I think set out the review, um, like I talked about, just try it. I'm not, it might not be for you. It might not work, but try it um assuming the knowledge is in the room say to students take photos of the few questions that they got wrong say to students i've taken photos of some of your questions you got wrong you've got 20 minutes to in your groups make sure your partners understand every mistake they made and make sure that they could answer an ex- like a question about any of their mistakes and at the end of the lesson i'm going to project your mistakes and if your partners can't explain it's on you guys and i'm blaming you as the person who knew and just see how it affects them and then actually follow through with it and you know make them accountable and um i think some of you like hopefully will get a nice surprise as to the way the students react so i I urge you to give it a go awesome sammy kempis thank you so much for your time today it's been a phenomenal discussion where it may be the officially longest podcast i've done i'm not sure but we're definitely up up near it pretty much bang on three hours of of talking and three hours of content it's it's been really really amazing it's been wonderful to speak with a teacher who's really in the trenches, who's doing it every day. And I mean, there's just the pra- the number of practical takeaways from this podcast for myself, and I'm sure for listeners as well, is absolutely ridiculous. Um, there are also some other things that stood out, like that idea of Kaizen that you talked about and continuing improvement that you want, you know, your students to take on, but also also your staff. I thought that you modeled it really, really well in today's discussion, you know, if, even just just that, like your, the way you talked about how your mind was changed um, in terms of test feedback, how you talked about how your mind was changed in terms of lesson um, and learning objectives, things like that. I think 
and 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 the way you talked about you know how how much of a mess your classes were in your first first year or so of teaching you know i think i think sharing these kinds of stories about how we've changed our minds and and how you know we've improved in teachers it makes it makes teaching much more accessible for those people who are starting out and perhaps really struggling in their classroom so i think that's really really valuable as well uh, and then there were lots of you know really valuable threads in the in the podcast things like you know accountability consistency high expectations um, all this stuff is absolutely crucial and key and also the idea really importantly if not lying to yourself and and more broadly the idea of honesty and i also appreciate the honesty you've shared in this podcast in terms of admitting when there's things that uh, you yourself or maybe tta could be doing well because i think building from that that position of honesty we can really identify what our weaknesses are and what we need to work on and, and keep getting better so from many respects uh, and from many angles sammy I'm, I'm so grateful you were able to come on the podcast especially at quite short notice and um and I, and I know this will be an immensely valuable podcast for so many listeners. So thanks again, Sammy. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And I hope people take just a, like a couple of things that they can practice away from it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERR podcast with Sammy Kempner. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollielevel.com, inclusive of links to the John Cat website. And remember that code ERRR30 for 30% off any book from JCE. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the e podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other e episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.